The following podcast is with Andrew Pope, picking it out with Neil Pruitt, the voice of the New World Order for Life. Well, it's another podcast. Just called Picking It Out. It's another podcast. We're going to be picking it out. Got the voice of the NWO and producer for WCW and Turner, Neil Pruitt in the house. Yeah, and we're going to be picking it out. y'all appreciate y'all tuning in once again to picking it out my name is andrew pope and you know i think we've just we've just about turned this thing into a wrestling podcast (laughs) and i'm okay with that anybody that knows me knows i'm totally fine with that because i grew up loving it but you know i've had so many uh friends that i've met from the wrestling world through music and uh now i've had just others that i've met and i can't get enough of it i reckon uh so i'm real excited because uh this guy right here was just as crucial a part of the nwo's image and vibe as anybody Uh, i really believe that and people know him as the voice of the nwo but he also went way deeper than that behind the scenes and i wanted to talk about a lot of that uh so people would know and we got mr neil pruitt with us how you doing man Great, Andrew. Glad to be on your show, man. Thanks for having me. I know uh, there's been a lot of big names, way bigger than me, on your podcast already, so I'm honored to be here. Oh, no, I appreciate you doing it, man. I'm looking forward to uh, talking to you. And we got to address the shirt in the room. You got that right. NWO for life. It's the For Life shirt. For life. That, there you go. <laughs> Boy, that brings back some memories. I've got the original Turner or the original WCW uh, NWO shirt that I ordered out of a WCW magazine, if you can believe that. And what does it say on the back? Nothing. Okay, because the original shirt, I think the very original shirt, had something on the back. Oh, really? Yeah, it said some kind of comment, like, you know, some joke about where the big boys play or something. Oh, okay. I remember seeing that shirt, actually. That's the one before the, uh, just the logo and the words right. and nothing on the back. Right. I didn't yeah. know that. Well, I don't have the original shirt then in that case. <laughs> <laughs> hey, 
As long as you got the NWO logo, that's what counts. That's right. Sweet logo. I like it. I always do like it. It is, man. Uh, do you know who come up with it? Yeah, actually, this lady who is a graphics person in Disney and Rob Wright, who is a senior editor for us, who eventually went on to CNN to work with Larry King Live, who all the promos for him, all the crazy graphic open and stuff. Rob yeah. Wright, he was the one that came up with the, the original NWO logo. Wow. It was a tough one, though, to recreate sometime, though, because, of the, you know, some of the problems where they we had it etched out and kind of aged out. Mm-hmm. Some of these little dots over here, like some of those were kind of hard to project onto the floor, like when you saw some of the entrances where Jeff Orenstein, who was the awesome lighting director that we used, and now is with TNA. Yeah. He had these gobos, they call them, which are little patterns that you put in front of lights and shoot them on the ground. Mm-hmm. But, uh, they had to be screened, a lot of a lot of screen because of the look of the logo itself and all the little intricacies of the jaggeds and stuff like that. It just couldn't be a typical one. It had to be kind of a special one. So those are those are cool looking to see a light projected through and see the NWO logo because at first I wanted to make a look where we had the NWO logo going across their body with a light pattern. And the very first one, I think you see all that, but it just kind of became a hassle and it, it looked okay, but it didn't look great. So I don't think we did that much after the first one or two. That's what, when Hall and Nash brought themselves, I think. But it was a, it was a fun, fun thing to be a part of. Man. I can't imagine. And wrestling was hotter than ever. And I know a lot of these ideas for these uh, promos these sound bites that uh, that y'all would do, a lot of that was your ideas. But you know, I want to go back. How how did you get started in uh, video production? And I always liked having an eight millimeter camera in my hand that my dad had, and when we made family videos and stuff, we got our family films back then. I just thought it was kind of cool to capture an image that you can see again later. And my father was an electrician in a steel mill. But before that, he had gone to radio TV school to repair them and had his own TV shop. So he'd fix televisions back when they were difficult to work on. And they had the tubes and everything you put down in the wires whenever. Yeah. Anyway, as a little kid, when he'd be working on one, he'd have a mirror it was on a seat angled so he could see it when he's behind the TV set. Mm-hmm. And I would look inside from the back of the TV set to see all the wires and the tubes and the lights and stuff going on. And I just thought, man, all that together makes an image that can be broadcast across the world. That is magic. That is just amazing that that can happen. So I guess I was always in awe of television and the fact that you could broadcast something across the world and I knew what I wanted to do in 10th grade. I knew I wanted to be a TV producer in 10th mm. grade. So that helped a lot. <laughs> wow. That's, I mean, I think I wanted to be like a weatherman when I, when I was like a, a kid and, you know, then I wanted to be, I don't know, like all kinds of stuff. Oh, uh, and then I fell into music mm-hmm. somehow. Oh, uh, 
I guess that's just who I really am. Only thing I'm really good at. <laughs> uh, but it seems like you just stayed focused with that. Yeah, I was on radio when I was in high school for this thing called Domino Broadcasting. It's part of Junior Achievement. And then I went to Junior Achievement Management College, and it was actually at the college I eventually went to, which is called Bowling Green State University. We had a really good TV production facility and TV station and two radio stations. And I was on the radio for four years there and really enjoyed it. I knew I really didn't want to become a radio personality like right away or anything. Maybe, maybe later in my life I will. Yeah. But I just, you know, I fell into podcasting eventually, but I didn't think my voice was so good for radio, but I didn't develop a fake laugh either. And strangely enough, that's part of what you have to do when you're on the radio for like a morning personality. You have to I've develop some kind of fake laugh. And I never was one to just <laughs> in this uh, loud <laughs> laugh like crazy. I was more of a, you know, like a kind of you know almost like a monthly kind of laugh so i knew i i don't know i just didn't have it and i and i couldn't always be super excited all the time i was kind of i'm not i'm not one of those persons who just goes wild all the time and can be up and like energetic i'm just not that person i just i'm more relaxed and calm so i knew radio wasn't going to be it for me but i was always creative and i could always make crafts and things like that and the fun part about video is making something out of nothing. Mm-hmm. That's what I think I had excelled at. And that's what really worked for wrestling. It's kind of like, you know, writing songs. Oh, uh, there's a lot of similarities really, you know, mm-hmm. cause it's all art mm-hmm. and you're making something out of nothing. Just, mm-hmm. just the initial idea or the initial thought. And you carry that off, man. And then like, especially for you, like after all these years later, to, to be able to see what collectively y'all did, that's got to be amazing just to know. It's fun to see, but Andrew, there's no doubt, there's no way I could have done it by myself by any means. I mean, we had the greatest sure. lighting people, we had the greatest camera people and audio people, and there's so many names that I could rattle off that just made it all happen. It wasn't, it wasn't any one person by themselves, believe me, it was a collective project, and I just thank so many people I got to work with and so many professionals that really cared about what we did, even though it was wrestling. And some people thought it was goofy and those people just moved on and we just got rid of them. But we had some of the best technicians in the world work with us and I could never pull it off, you know, doing some of the ideas we had without, without them and without their input as well. I mean, I was always one to shoot if the janitor had a good idea over there, you know, I'd, I'd take it. I mean, we were always open for suggestions. And some people, they get these big egos and they're all uh, only wanting to do what they want to do. And I, mm-hmm. I don't really do it like that at all. I, it's a collective thing for me. And we all are together with this. And I think that's what made it so good because it was always, everybody was always at the top of their game and making sure that they could really knock it out of the park. And they did over and over. It was no. cool. It was really cool. I mean, that's one thing I really liked about TV too, is it's a collective creative art form. And yeah. it was fun, man. I mean, it was really fun. A lot of fun. Have you ever heard the story about, uh, Desi Arnaz using multiple cameras for I love Lucy? Well, I knew he was one of the first to do it. And, uh, they did a lot of 
lot of multi cameras, which you know was a groundbreaking thing. Yeah. And he used he, if I'm not mistaken, was he was that the show, first show that was actually taped? That I don't know. Uh, Dizzy Lou Productions, you know, was the name of the company yeah. that did all those. Um, I don't know that, but I I know there's you know along the along the way of a lot of these shows, uh, like Gary Marshall was involved with Happy Days, and uh, Vernon Shirley, who was uh, that was his sister, but they did a lot of their films like that. Even when they did the film about baseball, women's baseball, that Madonna was in, and Tom Hanks, and the League of Their Own, crying in baseball, yeah, League of Their Own. They did that multi-camera film style. So mm-hmm. they shot it like a TV show, yeah. like film. And a lot of films shot with like one or two cameras at a time back then. But now it's it's more wide open because they don't have to shoot on film anymore. So they can just shoot multi-cameras all day long, which has really opened it up and made it a lot better to get really terrific productions out of it. And, you know, with the CG involved, with the graphics involved, it's just the, the Unreal Engine it's called where they can make their own worlds like Avatar and things like that. It's just incredible. You can do it in your home. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of can be scary, <laughs> some of that. Yeah, it's amazing what you can do at home now, really. It really I, is. I, I'm, I'm envious of kids that can do that because, you know, we had a lot of ideas making films back in the day when we were kids, but we could never pull it off because you could never afford it. But now you can do any documentary. And I encourage somebody, Andrew, if they have any inkling about running a camera, whether it be just your iPhone or whatever, take your parents, your mentors, whoever you respected and it helped you through life, interview them and have that around so your kids can see where you came from, who you are, and what you're all about. One of the best things I ever did in my lifetime, even though it didn't air internationally, didn't air anywhere at all, was interviewing my parents for 45 minutes before my dad got sick. And uh, I broke it up to 15-minute increments, so it's on YouTube where you can see my now now nieces and nephews and son, all the kids that come after. They can see where we came from, you know, and that's a big deal to me, and uh, I think we all should do that. I love that. Did, did you just have the idea to just to do that one day? No. Well, I regret the fact that I didn't do that with my mom, especially my mom's mom and dad because they were such a big influence on, on us in general and our whole family. And I was bound and determined to do it when I got them in Florida one time when they were in their most relaxed place and they were in like a vacation home and I just interviewed them. And it was really great. Um, I, it's, not, it's not my original idea by any means. I mean, people do this for a living even. And it's just terrific to, to ask them the questions and find out how they got it involved with each other and what they used to like to do. And you find out so much about questions you probably should have asked anyway. Yeah. So I encourage everybody to do it. That's a great idea. That's something that would always be there too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. It's, it's important to know where it came from because yeah. you know, my, my parents, uh, and my grandparents, they didn't come from a lot of money or anything like that, but you know, they cared about people and, they made a difference in the world and you know it's kind of weird to be from Levittsburg, Ohio, you know, which is a very small town in northeast Ohio, yet being able to see something on national TV. I remember the Sting I Need a Hero video, which was where he was dressed up like 
Pro. He had uh, the makeup he wears now, similar to it. Which Sting's a great guy, by the way. He still is. I've seen him recently, and just terrific person. And uh, the "I Need a Hero" video was where he was like up in the rafters and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Had the had the bird with him and everything. But it was to Bonnie Tyler. I think I need a hero song. And I forget how much we had to pay each time. It was only supposed to air one time, but it aired several times, and they liked it. And uh, it was cool to be sitting at home and on Thanksgiving and watch that on TV. You know, I was back in my, my home and sitting on my mom and dad's couch going, wow, that's cool. I did that, you know. Yeah. And I did it together. You know, it was cool. It's exciting. Well, from- Probably like, you know, you hearing your stuff on, on radio. I mean, you know, work with John Snyder and have stuff air that, you know, is across the world that you've helped create. That's that's really awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really cool, you know, uh, especially with John. I mean, I grew up watching the Dukes of Hazard, so uh, just you know, I forget, I forget sometimes that he is Bo Duke, yeah, yeah, because uh, he's just such a nat, just like us, he's just so natural and just down to down to earth, and you know, uh, yeah, I appreciate him giving me opportunities to you know get me out there for his his crowd. I really do. Yeah. I don't take that lightly. Absolutely. That's terrific. And every time I've ever seen him on camera, he looks like he's really relaxed and a really nice person, you know, and he doesn't overdo it on his hair or nothing. He just kind of goes out there and does it. So yeah. He looks looks very natural and, and he looks comfortable. It's really cool. He's good. Well, how did radio transition into your first, uh, well, your first video job of, of any kind, maybe not TV, but just, video related i was very lucky that my one roommate his sister worked at channel 11 in toledo and when i went to school hockey was the big thing we actually won the national championships the year i graduated and i was on the camera crew i was the assistant camera for the top center camera which is always on unfortunately i never got to run it because the guy was always very healthy and he did a great job and never missed a show, but I would have been the cameraman for that had he had he done that. But that was that was terrific to be able to go into a sold out arena every time and just go in at the last second and get fed and then get paid and help them pack the equipment up and that was cool. But we also did MTV basement tapes at another company. I think it, it might have been the same company. But what we would do is we'd do music videos, like a live event project or something. Mm-hmm. And then we would give it to MTV and they would actually put it on, on the air back when MTV actually played music. And I got to work on a couple of those projects. So that was a decent resume builder right off the bat. Yeah. And that's, uh, then I also worked my very first wrestling event was at Toledo at the big auditorium they had there. And it was Greco Roman wrestling. Mm. And I got a funny story about that, that we saw Cuba, Russia, um, somewhere in Africa, uh, I forget who all was involved, some European teams, and our USA team was great, and I believe the gold medalist from 68 um, from Iowa. Shoot, uh, anyway, he was there. But it was funny that I was in the green room, they call it where people wait around to mm-hmm. people wait around to go out to wrestle or work, 
and the Russian wrestlers, they were all sitting around the table. And I saw them grab a can and they they took this can and they, they told them up their head and go, looking at it like, because what they saw is liquid on the can, but there wasn't any liquid inside it. It was just powder. So they didn't get like the way crystal light worked or tang or whatever. They didn't get it. And they're like, what the heck? You know? Anyway, they're, they're kind of amazed by that. They're passing around. They're all shaking it, looking, looking at it. Like, I don't know what the heck's going on. But anyway, right at the very end of the tournament, um, I saw this guy. He opened up his big gym bag, and he took it over there by the end of the table where all the teas and stuff like that. They had a bunch of different tea and coffee and whatever you could use to you know drink. And he just takes his arm and swipes it all into the bag on gym bag and took it all home. <laughs> took it back to Russia. <laughs> oh, okay, now fast forward to 96 during the Olympics. That's when the NWO was really hot because, well, just before that, because we were about ready to go to Disney and shoot all those. NWO original videos, but they took us down to Disney because they didn't think we we're going to be able to get the shows done because of the traffic that was going to be caused by the Olympics. So anyway, they were starting to do the pre-trials and, and get people from different countries used to going to the Olympic venues and things. So they had a wrestling, I guess it was a just a meeting, committee meeting of some sort. So the Russians, they knew they were supposed to be at CNN Center, but they didn't know where. So they happened to see wrestling above the board. And when we, we used to be in CNN on the main floor, they had uh, World Championship Wrestling. So they, they could read the word wrestling, no problem. So then they looked like wrestlers. But we had a door that you had to have a, a passcode to get in. Yeah. Or when you come out of it, you'd have to wait for a second for the thing to let you out. Anyway, since they look like wrestlers, somebody accidentally let them in the door. So they come walking down the hallway by where we edited. And I recognized two of those guys right off the bat from Toledo, Ohio, back in 1985. <laughs> wow. So I knew they were in the wrong place because I asked the English interpreter, dude, I said, you know, what are you guys looking for? Can I help you? And they said, yeah, we're supposed to have a wrestling meeting in CNN Center. And I said, yeah, well, you're not here at the other kind of wrestling, but I know where you're <laughs> supposed to be. So I'll take you there in a minute. I said, but I got a story to tell you. I said, I remember you and you were in Toledo, Ohio many years ago, and I saw you take the all the drinks and all the teas and all that, scrape it in your gym bag and take it all. And they all started <laughs> laughing. But it was kind of funny because I had to tell the story in English, and then that dude had to interpret it to him, and then all of a sudden they all started laughing. But anyway, <laughs> that's the kind of weird stuff that, that happens. Uh, wow. You see TV people over the years like, that's a crazy thing about the business and probably musicians too, where we might not work for somebody for 15 years, you know, but yet we go as soon as we see each other right back to it. You know? Oh yeah. So it's, really, it's a lot of fun. It's, uh, it's one of those businesses where people are pretty energetic and they're pretty forward and they like to have a good time and they work hard and uh, it's fun to see those people over the years. That's a very cool story. Uh, <laughs> pretty that- weird, right? It's weird how things happen like that, you know. Yeah. I've had all kinds of weird things happen like that, too. It's just it's like, how is are there really any coincidences? I don't know if there are or not, really. Probably not. <laughs> I mean, that's, that makes you, that kind of stuff like that is just, think about how big the world is. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that just seems insane. Yeah. I mean, the cool thing about this, too, though, I always knew that I was in a privileged position. I was lucky to be doing what I was doing. And 
there are people breathing down our neck at all times trying to get our job, you know, and I don't blame them because it sure. was a great job. I think that's part of the motivation, but part of the motivation to do good and make everybody look good. And that was, that was my responsibility was to whoever I was working with, make them look the best they can. And even though even sometime when they didn't want to yeah, um, you know, work, work with people like uh, say Gordon Soli, who never had to do one over again. And I had to tell him to do one over again. You know, I, I wasn't going to let up. I don't, I don't care who you are, Andrew. I'm talking to you the same way as I talked to Hulk Hogan or, yeah. or, or Lex or Ric Flair or whatever. I just, you know, we're all humans. We're all the same. My dad said, you know, better than anybody. Nobody's better than you. I treat everybody like I want to be treated. That, that's really been helpful for me. I don't, I don't kiss butt. You know, I don't do that. Just forget it. I, I ain't there. So I think that, I think it helped me in life, actually. It helped me get to producing the, the wrestling and getting the responsibility to do it. It was a privilege. I think it does help, uh, and I think it gain you gain respect uh, from people that way. Mm-hmm. I'm the same way. I'm I talk to everybody the same, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not a lot of people do that, especially if you're in a position where you can move up in a company or get a record deal or whatever. I mean, most people will just do whatever they got to do. Uh, those people are usually ones that are not respected at all, mm-hmm. and it's kind of a kind of a weird situation because uh, people get. I feel like some people get caught up so much in their own uh, bullshit that they just forget to kind of want to be respected. They don't even care about being respected, mm-hmm. you know. And egos and stuff gets involved, and there you go. Yeah, they get in their own way a lot of times. And I think that's one thing that probably helped me the most was to know who I am and what I'm there for and know that these people, although they're in front of the camera or whatever, they need they need your help as much as anybody because they're so used to having somebody asking for something. Or, yeah. Like, I think – Hogan and I, that's why we got along so well is because I didn't want anything off of him, need anything off of him. Yeah. We we're, we're just there to make it right and make it best we could. And he understand, he understood the film business, which helped a lot because he knew that he didn't have to, have to ask a bunch of questions. I'd say, okay, you remember when you just did this five seconds ago? Well, we only have one camera, so we're shooting with two, make it look like there's multi cameras. And, we're making it maybe look like there's four cameras or maybe even five cameras. There are only one. So you have to shoot it in a sequence to where it looks like it's put together all at one time, but it's not. And that's part of the art of it. And that's why I really love to making many films up right on the spot without any prior preparation. That's what was really yeah. challenging and exciting and fun. And he was good at it because like when they beat Flair up in the, in the, um, oh, the, the graveyard! It, they built him up with. They beat him up in the in the field that time, where the helicopters were flying over top, and we had Hummers and yeah, everything in NWO. Just it, it was probably one of those things that I kind of got in the most trouble for, even though it wasn't my idea. Mm. But it went on way too long. It was kind of ridiculous. But doing that video, like I wanted to have, it looked like they're following Hogan behind the limousine coming around the corner with Ric Flair 
in the um, in the driver's side rear rear window to where Flair was kind of surprised with it, and I had him do it where we were looking first of all from Flair's direction. The camera was sitting next to Flair, and we're looking over his uh, shoulder, and you could see Hogan's head come in there. Well, that was good, and we loved the reaction, and everything worked out well with that. But after we got done shooting that little sequence, we went outside, and I said, okay, Hulk, remember when you did that with Flair and you scared him like that? We want to act like we're, our cameras are following you around. So now go back behind the rear of the car again and then do that same move where you come up and scare flair and you know flair react like you did before yeah. and see stuff like that you first then on the film you follow them around looks great then you cut to the shot just before flair gets scared from the inside you know and it looks like it's all kind of happening together i got in trouble for that because my boss said it looked like a film hmm. and i didn't think that we could show anything that long without it making it look like a film. And that was one of the struggles that we had the whole time I was at wrestling was how much film type stuff do you do? Or do you make it look like it's one camera because there wouldn't be multiple cameras at a, at a location when you're doing something like that. Does that make sense? I don't, I don't know. It's a, it's kind of a philosophical thing for a viewer is they think it's a lot of people think it's fake if it looks like a movie, which I understand that. Uh huh. So that was always something we had to battle with. Uh, do we do it one camera to make it look like we just happened to catch it happening right at that time? Or do we make it look like a film production where they get to suspend their own belief? Uh, it was, that was a tough thing we struggled with the whole time as far as creatively on what, how to, how to do things. Uh, the NWO worked out fine because we knew that there could be multiple cameras there during the interview. And the idea of, I gave Scott Hall my personal camera to videotape the other guys, and they swap that around sometimes. Yeah. But I thought that was a, a good look because we never get to see all the pageantry and all the crazy lights that go on around the interview. And I, I thought that was one of the most exciting parts about the business is showing all the equipment it took to make something like that. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know if you watch uh, – ever watch TMZ or any of those Hollywood type shows that promote behind the scenes stuff. But see, I thought we should have been doing that all the time at WCW. And one of my biggest disappointments was that they would never listen to us as far as taking a still photographer with us to capture us doing these things with behind the scenes photographs. There should have been a, there should have been a still photographer there every time we were there, but some of the management situation is just so really weird and, they just didn't have it together, man. Like WWE did. Yeah. yeah, it could have been. It could have been a whole lot better. The whole NWO thing, as exciting as it was, and we're so glad it, you know, resonated for a lot of people. We could have made it even that much better had we had still photographs of behind the scenes of how it looked and how exciting it was, and just the just the sheer uh, area that you had to work with to make it work. And right, that could have been even better, you know, because. You know, social media is so important in any business now, and it was just oh, yeah. kind of starting back then, but it could have worked because it could have been in the magazines. It could have been whatever online presence we had. So there's a lot of marketing ideas that we had as production people that we just could never get off the ground because people wouldn't, wouldn't do it or they wouldn't pay attention. But 
Uh, overall, believe me, it was a great experience. <laughs> but it could have been even that much better. Yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying. You know, you see these pictures uh, surface on the Internet now from, uh, you know, like I saw a picture one day of uh, it was Tom Selleck and it, it was shooting Magnum P.I. You could tell they were on the set and Burt Reynolds stopped by. Somebody, yeah. you know, there was it was a professional shot picture. Uh, you could just tell by looking at it. Mm-hmm. Because they were, you know, on all the any set, they probably do have a still photographer. Oh, they do, they do, yeah. I uh, mean, one this one friend of mine, that's what his job was mm-hmm. to go behind the scenes for films. Isn't, isn't there a country song? Well, I ain't Tom Selleck and I ain't Burt Reynolds. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Sammy <laughs> Kershaw baby loves me Cadillac style. I think it's called. Yeah, Sammy Kershaw. Sure. Yeah, is. I, I always like this stuff, man. I, that. that uh, um, the, the romance song that he has, where third rate, third rate romance, third rate romance, rendezvous or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> that you know, story is just a good song. That was uh, uh, amazing. Rhythm Aces song, mm. and he redid it. And I think I don't know if it's number one for him, but yeah, he, uh, he had a good career. Same. Yeah. Oh man, I liked a lot of his stuff. He just because he's so tongue in cheek, you know. Yeah, you need to take it all too seriously, and that—that's the the NWO is a little bit like that because uh, I told my brother he just moved to Denver, and we did this one video, and one of the biggest mistakes I I've ever made was when we had the NWO, we had Kevin Nash who was a artist in college, he actually graduated with in the University of Tennessee and played basketball. I guess he graduated. I don't know if I'm there. He's a multimillionaire. He's good, but. Uh, we had him painting on it. We had an easel and everything we got for him. And yeah. we had him painting the WCW and what it looked like in the NWO. And we had these really nice shots of the steady cam, Tim Snyder, who was snake who did like the Goldberg entrances and things like that. He was the guy that did the camera work for that. But we had these nice sweeping shots where you saw the tulips and stuff, all the flowers in the foreground while he's back there painting all these wide shots, very artistically creative. And it looked a little bit like the, uh, one commercial that Hogan did where he was talking about some kind of anti-perspirant or something. <laughs> anyway, it's kind of a rip off of that, but uh, they painted WCW and then he painted the NWO as like a, like a um, UFO and it was raining down these destruction on top of WCW. <laughs> and uh, I should have kept that painting because I remember leaving it in the rental car because I just couldn't take it back on a plane and Lord, I could have sold that for, I can't Oh tell man. But that spurred to a story where, we would do stuff, and if we saw something that would just we thought would might work, we go, let's go over there and do one. Mm-hmm. And that's how free flowing it was. Yeah, because see, they would talk for they would talk like 15, 20 minutes sometimes, and we had to cut it down to a couple minutes. And what you got was the best of the best. And the toughest part was the transitions between what they said and two different places, and how to marry that together because. You have to have a transition point. It's almost like uh, writing a chorus or, or writing a, you know, some kind of refrain or whatever in music where you have to tie it together with something. Yeah. So I would have to get Kevin Nash to say something. Or Scott Hall always did. He had no problem. But uh, sometimes Kevin Nash had a, had a difficult time doing what I wanted him to say. <laughs> but uh, we, would, we would put stuff together. But we, when we're in Denver, we look over and there's this place that looked like Rome. It would look like 
the Roman ruins. So, hey, man, we never pass up an opportunity. So after we got done with that shoot with the nice flowers in the foreground and all that, we went over to the place that looked like Rome, and they did all those lines like, hey, do you like gladiator movies? And, you know, all those lines they could think of that really funny. Yeah. <laughs> I told my brother one of the best parts I liked about it was <clears throat> right in the middle of it, we took a shot, and you could see the the ruins in the foreground, and in the background you could see up there Denver Post. <laughs> he goes, he goes, <laughs> goes, hey, what's the Denver Post doing in Rome? <laughs> Leave it to him. <laughs> Stuff like that would you know they would just come up just out of nowhere, yeah. and then we, we we'd work it in somehow, you know. And and that was a part of the creative fun about the NWO in general too was the wisecracked lines that you'd figure out how to fit in somewhere. And they had a lot of them, that's for sure. Well, you know, uh, before all that, how did you get, who who hired you? Was it, you were a Turner employee, right? You were hired yeah. for Turner. So I used to, I was lucky enough to get fired for my first job, actually, where I learned a lot about multi-camera directing from this guy who was an NBC News engineer. He was originally from New York, but uh, he was in Atlanta. And like when the space shuttle blew up, he was immediately the first one called. He used to put together the cameras for the Today Show when they were anywhere in the Southeast. So I learned multi-camera. We had to plug in the cameras and things like that. Yeah. And I worked for Joe Hamilton, who was the assassin. Uh, I did a show, TV show for him and his son, uh, Nick Patrick, who was a referee. I did a show called Deep South Wrestling. It was called Deep South Championship Wrestling then. And that's how I first got directing in wrestling. And I, I didn't know anything about it other than Jody, uh, God rest his soul, and just a great friend. And uh, he told me that I was really good at cutting the action. On, But I just I – lo- I looked at it like a fight scene. You know, you don't want to expose the tricks you do in a fight scene. So that's the same thing with wrestling. So that's how I directed the show. Anyway, after that folded, I then was asked to uh, – I actually, I, I was fired from that job later, not, not from Jody, but from that guy I worked with. And I was asked to run camera for a sports show. So I did that, and they really liked what I shot. And I said, look, you know, I'm a, I, I like, the, like how I shot, but I'm really an even better editor. So then I started editing the projects that I shot, which makes it just great for a person who's kind of a one-man band type because we get to choose our own shots and what sequences we thought about in the first place when we shot them. So it was really helpful to edit your own stuff. I, I don't like to edit other people's shoot that don't know what they're doing. It's kind of frustrating. Yeah. So when you do know what you're doing and you know how to shoot and everything just flows together, it's so simple. So after I started editing those projects, um, the guy that I worked with, Bo Bach, from Bo Bach Sporting Times, sometimes he had issues with people one way or another, and you can figure that out on your own. But the director just one day up and quit. Well, while I was shooting the packages the, the day of and then editing them just before they aired, I wanted to stick around and see what they looked like on the air. So then I eventually worked my way into the audio booth. So I was running audio. So uh, being a multi-camera director already, I knew I could direct a sports show. So 
that the director left and I immediately stepped in the next day. So I was only 25 years old directing an Olympic sports show, which is a great thing wow. for any kid to do. And, uh, you know, it was a, it was a big deal for me. And the guy that worked, um, putting in the tapes back then and rolling the tapes for all the packages that we had and all the pre-interviews for like coach K from Duke, uh, Finn Stooley, I mean, all, all these people that we interviewed that were on the set and everything, we had little segments for them. Mm-hmm. That, that guy was the producer then eventually at WCW. His name was Chris Huber. Mm. So Chris Huber one day called me and said, hey, can you do audio for wrestling? And I said, yeah, that'd be great. You know, I mean, I kind of understood wrestling, not really being a fan, but from having done Jody's show. And I'd never really run audio in the field before, but I knew I could just turn it on. Yeah. So after that, um, I started freelancing doing that and they liked how I set everything up, but it really became a different, uh, ball game when I said, Hey, do you mind? I understand how you shoot these, the way you do it now. I said, do you mind if I have an idea on how we can make this much more efficient? They said, yeah, okay, let's do it. So back then I remember, at, uh, Gainesville, Georgia, which Georgia mountain center, we did a lot of, TV tapings and one of the clashes was there. And it was, it was a good little venue. It was not like center stage in Atlanta, which is really small and tight. We did WCW Saturday night, but it was good. Well, anyway, we had many, many shows to do like worldwide, um, WCW Saturday night. I mean, all these ones that aired in Europe, there, there, there are shows that aired all over the place. That you might not even know about. And we'd have like, I don't know, six, seven pages of different promos and stuff for, different towns that we would go to Johnson city, Tennessee, or Tallahassee, Florida, whatever we'd have market specifics. They call them. Yeah. Well, we had to do these commercials and we had to do little 10 second things for WCW Saturday night. So we had to do all these different ones and they'd be all on these individual pages, but the wrestlers, they would like do a show at a time or something like that. And they would like be in there all day coming back and forth. Well, I said, why don't we have one, whoever here is the, first wrestler why don't we have him sign a page he gets on it and then he gets the privilege of getting all his done as soon as we can because he was here first and gene anderson Ole anderson gene anderson uh was older of course he was in charge of the whole thing so he was cool with it tony Schiavone was cool with it because he had to be there anyway it didn't matter but what i did then was i had each individual show had its own individual tapes mm. so when i got back now, they didn't do that before. They had 13 tapes that had crap all over it. Oh, my God. Yeah, and they'd have to look through these 13 tapes to get their stuff. But mm. I said, why don't we have each show have their own tape? So I remember going back, and shoot, it might have been Craig Leathers. Or yeah, I think it was probably Craig Leathers. He was going worldwide with Rob Wright, who did the design of the NWO. I said, what show do you work on? He said, I work on worldwide. I said, okay, here's your tape for all the interviews. They go, what? Where's the rest of the tapes? I said, you don't need any rest of the tapes. They're all on here. He goes, you got to be kidding. I said, no, they're all on here. That's all you need. They go, wow, that's good stuff. So just thinking about how to do things differently helped me too. Because just because you've been doing something for a long time that way doesn't mean it's the right way. Yeah. And that's probably the only reason nobody had ever done anything different because that's the way they had always done it and just uh, put it all on, you know, figure it out. I mean, but you saved so much time. Mm-hmm. by doing yeah. that and they like they like the fact that just because i was an audio person i was still thinking about how to produce stuff because obviously that's eventually where i wanted to go anyway 
And yeah. I'd, I'd advise any young person. I mean, you got to do the work from the ground up and you got to be willing to do whatever it takes as far as like take out the garbage or tape. I remember I had to tape like a quarter mile of, uh, uh, of a video cable down the first day on the job when I was down in Atlanta. But you got to be willing to do that. But in the back of your mind, keep what is it that I ultimately want to do? So that's what I am. I'm a producer in training. I'm not a PA. I'm not a. I'm not an assistant anybody. I'm not an associate, whatever. I am who I want to be later in life. Right now, I'm just in training for it. And that's how I kept in my mind because I always knew what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be. And I just kept that in the back of my mind. Until I get there, I'm just training to do that. So that's advice I can give anybody on any job. Know what you ultimately want to be and try to try to interview whoever you want to be too, as far as uh you know, if you have a person that you really admire, I mean, ask them all kind of questions because people like to talk about, I mean, that's why I'm here talking to you. People yeah. like to talk about stuff that they're interested in or they had success in and try to help other people. They'll, they'll do it. Just call them up on the phone and just, yeah. you know, I, I don't mean to make this a job interview type situation on how to help people. But, no, it's but great it advice. Works, you know? But I, I'm glad that you're kind of all over, all over the map on what we talk about. So. <laughs> oh yeah. We're, yeah, but, but uh, that's how I got started in, doing the interviews. And then I started writing lines for people or kind of critiquing them and saying, you know, why don't you say this? Or how, how about saying it like that? And we, so we kind of critiqued the work of the people like Stone Cold Steve Austin. He was scared to death of the camera when he first started as stunning Steve, but mm-hmm. we knew he was great. Yeah. It just, he had a little bit of an anxiety in front of the camera and I hope to talk to him someday and see if it's okay for me to say all this, but he had a little bit of an anxiety. And I said, look, you're, I think he's portraying himself as the most, the best athlete in the world or something at the time. And I said, these people out there, I mean, you know, you got to think of how to make somebody a heel. Mm-hmm. Good guy, right? Or mm-hmm. bad guy. Hit one. So I said, these people don't even deserve your gaze. Like what makes people mad is not looking them in the eye, right? I said, don't ever look at the camera. Just look wherever you want and just say whatever you want uh, as far as your promo goes. But don't look in the camera because if that's what makes you nervous, then it's that. You don't need to be doing that anyway because they don't deserve it. So that's kind of how he started go. getting more comfortable in front of the camera. And obviously, he made just an amazing career out of it. And I'm so happy for him and proud for him because, man, that guy, he was a good worker. And uh, he busted his butt. And he, he got it because he he performed every night. So Yeah, he did okay. Yeah, he did all right. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of like, you know, people – get uh stage fright and mm-hmm. you know i said well just imagine everybody in their underwear yeah i, I think i think that might have came from ben franklin actually i think he's, he's i didn't know that first. yeah yeah i think he's, he said that first because i i like to study communication i've always like interpersonal communication and just the little subtle things make a difference yeah they really do oh for sure and it was fun to develop characters too like yeah mankind uh mick foley Cactus Jack, dude, love, whatever you want to call him. Mm-hmm. The reason he's so great is because that's what he did. Mm-hmm. And like, I know Stone Cold talks about with him on a podcast he does, which is awesome. And by the way, if you ever get a chance to see Stone Cold Steve Austin's interview that he almost had with the Yeti, with the the uh, the abominable snowman Yeti, whatever you want to call it. Oh boy! You got, you got to watch it. It's hilarious. I don't even think I've seen that. Oh man, it's on YouTube. 
<laughs> you got to check that one out where he almost has an interview with Sasquatch. <laughs> it's hilarious. I, I had tears in my eyes, man. I remember driving down, uh, going from Northeast Ohio to Atlanta. We were driving through Cincinnati and my son was over there. He was sleeping and I had tears coming down in my eyes. I was laughing so hard in my bed. <laughs> but back to Mick Foley, he studied how to do a great interview. And he, he said, hey, you guys, if you don't mind, and we didn't mind because, you know, we were there getting paid anyway, sitting around. He goes, would you mind if I practice a couple more interviews? And do like, no. And he would kind of collectively get us as a group team to figure out how to get great interviews. Yeah. And, you know, he was already great, but he wanted to do it. And he wanted to make himself as good as he could. And he did. And the reason why is because like he and Stone Cold, Stone Cold knew when he went to Mick Foley, you're not going to turn the radio on. We're going to do, we're going to do promos. We're going to do interviews the whole time we're driving down the road. And that's how you get good at it. It's all about reputation. Like me talking right now, a few years back, I wouldn't have been able to do it like this because I wasn't a person in front of the camera, but mm -hmm. I've done so many podcasts now on my end and been interviewed so many times. I'm pretty comfortable with it now. Yeah. I think everybody needs to learn how to communicate their message better. It's just important. I don't care what business you're in. Just learn how to communicate. And that's what wrestling was. It's communicating emotion and action, how, a crowd reaction. How do you get somebody to feel a certain way? Yeah. It comes down to it. It's a lot of psychology. And that is so true about ring psychology and in front of the camera. It's the same way, but and it's all about me. It's, it's same, same thing as music. You, if you can listen an emotion, you can hit a soft spot or a tender spot or, you know, an excited spot or whatever. You can really make the people feel what you want to communicate to them. It's fun, man. Exactly. And don't be afraid. I would add to that to communicate the way that you, you know, or, or, or if you have an idea like what you had, how many people would have been just kind of afraid to say that because it wasn't their place or the, the people that were there doing it that way for so long, you know, they, they would have looked at them like, well, who are you to be saying that? Yeah. Oh yeah. That's, that's, that's really important. Cause I've always, I've always felt that it's almost better to be a little bit bold Mm-hmm. Because that's how you get your stuff pushed forward. Because if you lay back, man, nobody's going to come and go, hey, come on, you know, let's get your information there. Let's come on. Let's just, you got to, you got to kind of almost be in their face sometime. And yeah, that's how I was able to get some things done because I knew it was good for them. Ultimately, though, I did know it was better for them. Yeah. I didn't just want to push my idea because I thought it was a good idea. Yeah. I pushed it because I knew it could help people. And right. People, if they're good people, they'll react to that positively. If they're not, they're jealous. Exactly. You're going to deal with them too. You know, and I dealt with some of those in our business, you know, where they were oh, kind of yeah. jealous of the situation, but it, it, there's going to be politics in anything you do. I don't care what it is. Got to get through it, man. And move forward and try yeah. to make it all positive. So are you just, are you doing, when you're a freelancer, are you just doing several things before you're actually hired by Turner? Yeah. I went back before, see, before I was doing the sports show, I think. Yeah, it was, uh, so as soon as I got to Atlanta, I did some freelance stuff for CNN, like we do audio or whatever for different interviews and things I can remember. Like, I remember interviewing Rosalind Carter 
um, President Carter's wife down mm-hmm. in Georgia. And we do things like um, politics stuff that was happening in Atlanta somewhere. I mean, they're just the video business. The cool thing about it is for me was I, I'm an inquisitive person anyway. I like to see how things are done, how people formulate speeches, how things are made. So having a video camera in my hand or being a producer or audio person on a TV or video set was always very interesting to me because you always learn something and you're often videotaping the smartest people on that subject matter. So that's been a real joy for me. Just, you know, the wrestling part was great and all, and I love that, but there's so many more things and facets to my fortunate career that God's blessed me with that I was able to learn so many different things from so many different experts. And that's one thing that's fun about having a camera in your hand. You get to go to places you couldn't buy a ticket for. Oh yeah. Pretty awesome. Uh, what year were you full-time hired? Let's see. Actually, I started with wrestling probably in 87 and I was full-time in 1990 because the first pay-per-view I went to was in St. Louis and it was the very last event it was in the Keele Auditorium in St. Louis. It was Starcade. I, I, I was a, it was the one where the Black Scorpion came out. Um, Super Bowl? Might have been Super Bowl. Yeah, I can't remember the name of the, the event, but that was my very first pay-per-view event that I went to. Mm. And then um, I remember the way I got to be a producer, and a long story longer, I did a 1-900 member spot. Mm-hmm. And I had this idea where the the phone at the time was one you'd have on a table. You wouldn't have in your hand. <laughs> you'd actually pick it up and have to talk on it. Uh, yeah. Anyway, the phone had so much information in it that it grew bigger and bigger and bigger and it finally exploded and all the stuff from flying out of it and all these wrestling pictures and interviews and stuff like that were just flying at your face. And that was something they really liked really quick. The very first uh, thing I got to produce on my own. So after that, I was a producer from then on. What, what were you initially hired as before you got a producer job? As an audio person okay. doing the, inter- the interview audio. But I just kept trying to move forward, you know, and yeah, and, and I knew that was a good end. And I even was even lucky enough to produce WCW Saturday Night. I mean, which was, was huge. That was, was huge the, for me. that was the flagship show. Yeah, I mean, I thank Keith Mitchell for giving me that opportunity because, I mean, it was just one of those things where I had built on my past of being able to time a show out with the sports show and Keith asked me you know how to time a show right now you corrected this work show I said yeah I could do all that because timing in wrestling is obviously very crucial and knowing when to hit the commercial breaks or it got more and more complicated as we went but that helped me to where Keith had me there like a couple different times and all of a sudden I asked him why do you keep asking me if I'm going to come back next week to do this taping because because, I, because I'm not. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm the producer, and I was nervous, man. But all the crew was so fantastic, and they helped me through it. But the very first time, you're just super nervous about screwing up. <laughs> but I, t- I take a lot of notes. When people talk, 
I'm writing stuff down, buddy. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not going to have them have to repeat themselves. That's one thing I've always done too. That's helped me. Yeah. I take notes a lot because when they're talking, I'm writing it down because I don't want them to have to repeat themselves. Cause I appreciate every moment they tell me that can advance my career. So you were actually cutting the shows at when you were on a, as a producer. Well, I was a truck producer where I was helping call the slow-mos, okay. timing the shows, tell them how long the match is supposed to last, mm-hmm. making sure the interview set was ready for the upcoming interview because Dan Bynum was the director. And he went on to direct uh, Ring of Honor and a few other different things. He lives in Denver, great guy. Um, he's still, I think, doing something every now and then. He was just honored for like a Southwest Wrestling Hall of Fame. He was still he was uh, inducted into that recently. I think that was somewhere around uh, around Dallas. But anyway, uh, he was the person who actually cut the thing together. Once he got, he directed it, and then I, I produced it in the truck, and he was the one that put it together when he got back to the edit suite. But uh, I, I never, in wrestling, the only thing I ever really edited personally was some of the NWO stuff and some of the skits that we would do or some of the segments we'd do. As far as the shows go, I never edited the show. Uh, other than the some of the pay-per-views, I remember, I mean, I didn't physically do it. Some editor did it for me. Mm-hmm. Like the Collision in Korea, um, that whole pay-per-view event, we took that from scratch um, and mm. made that made that a show. Wow. Made it a pay-per-view and put music behind it and stuff like that and made it look like that all happened at that time. Yeah. And we also did the, I did a kickboxing thing called K1 Global Heat, I think it was called. And that was a kickboxing show that was shot in Japan. And I had to strip all the music off that they used because we didn't have the rights to it. And I put our own music in there and all the graphics that came in. And that's one thing I really enjoyed doing was a lot of the pay-per-view events. When you see the graphics and what happens during the show, Mm -hmm. responsible for a lot of those. And that that was really fun because the guys that were uh, the graphic artists were just so good and gals. They were terrific at what they did, and um, that was fun to put those packages together because you know what was coming up. Like the NWO, like the spray paint before they go to the transition to the slow-mo, that stuff. That was yeah. uh, one of our producers, Jason Douglas's hand, went like that, and we just added the sound effect to it and made it go across the screen. And the people remember sometimes they bashed the beach. We had the beach ball that came up and filled the screen and then went away. Yeah. Sharks swimming at it and just things like that. But made it you know more fun yeah and this and the when the wrestler entrance is probably the uh the names that come up yeah, like exactly. the theme yeah. to the font and the graphics of the specific <laughs> pay-per-view and, and, the, and the way the uh the sets looked mm-hmm. like uh, there was this guy named rick morganelli who was responsible for the way the set design looked and we'd like collaborate a little bit before the event and kind of say what we wanted to do because i wanted to always make sure that the crane operator the the camera that like is on, on a big like pole, like and would fly in the air like that. Mm-hmm. That, that. That shot. I always wanted to have them have foreground pieces with logos and stuff that they could work off of to make a more exciting shot. Because when I assisted direct to, to pay-per-view events, I was able to kind of really help with the entrances because I knew what pieces were there to work off of. Mm-hmm. And I would talk to the crane operator and also talk to the city cam operator. And we kind of figure out moves to do beforehand and they were pre-planned and those are the nice parts where 
Craig Leathers or Dan Bynum, whoever was directing, they could take a break for a second. They could get their breath. Why? Why the entrance kind of went on, and we kind of I kind of helped them get through the entrances without them having to think about it. Yeah, so that, it was man. It just so many things I got to touch. I got to sit at ringside with Dusty Rhodes and Jesse Ventura and Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone. I mean, dang on. I just think back. You know, I I, I don't remember some of these things because they only lasted for a little while. Not that I was thrown out of those positions, but I would move to a different position. Yeah, because I tried to be a utility man. Wherever you wanted me to do, I'll I'll do wherever. Yeah. Work so, and I was just so lucky to be in the right place at the right time so many times. And uh, I was and, always willing to do whatever it took, too. It was and, fun, though. And they they really listened to you. They took your ideas, and they, they didn't just say, ah, oh, you're the, you know, you ain't important enough. I mean, they really let you do your thing. Yeah, fortunately. And, because hopefully we showed the respect that they deserved. and. Mm-hmm showed them and they knew that we were there to make them look good and that was our job and we tried to do our best every day to do that it was exciting and, and it was uh, man it was just a fun fun thing to do so now you know the promo especially on saturday night let's go bo- before uh nitro even was a thing saturday night would have those promos with gene with the lockers in the back just mm-hmm. cutting an old style wrestling promo Right. Uh, was you a part of those segments like that too? Excuse me. Um, a lot of that stuff was shot at CNN in the very small booth that we had. And believe me, it was, it was a total debacle. Whoever designed that thing, just they really didn't know what they're doing. They're trying to design it for the crowd to look in while we're at CNN. You know, it was like a piece <laughs> we'd go by as a tour and we're like, whatever. The first. <laughs> the first day they built that thing, Keith Mitchell got these humongous black drapes and put up so nobody could see inside those windows. <laughs> that's the very first movie made. <laughs> so that, that part of the tour was gone. Forget it. But anyway, it was a dang on triangular room. And whoever put in, so, I mean, this is like, have you ever seen Eric, Eric Bischoff's first on-air performances? He was doing this thing called the Control Center. Mm-hmm. He would talk about upcoming matches that were going to happen at the pay-per-view and those hour shows that we did they were a lot of fun too beforehand they were like a hype show that would air on the pay-per-view channel before you could buy the pay-per-view The countdown thing yeah yeah that stuff i got to do some of those those are fun and um eric if you see like a lot of the editor behind him and some of the big monitors up there in the top and stuff like that that was our where we edited all the programs well, some knucklehead, whoever put the glass in that was between where Eric was speaking and between where we were editing, he put it in backwards. So it reflected <laughs> the lights right in the camera. So oh. thank God we had the greatest lighting person in the world, Bill Tinsley. He was able to fix it to where he positioned the lights where you couldn't tell that there was a piece of glass there. Wow. <laughs> whoever designed that studio should have been shot. <laughs> it was the worst. But, man, Bill Tinsley – he was able to make it happen, man, and, and breeze. And we had so many great audio people like Jay Paul, Mike Filosa. Man, they just really made it happen. I mean, we had we had people who were so good at overcoming issues like that. And we, it, it happened all the time. I and mean, we always had issues, but yet these people were able to overcome and make it happen, man. I mean, the NWO stuff would pop up at the last second. Like, I remember um, just weird things would happen when Rodman and Hogan were going to go against – um, TDP and Carl Malone. Mm-hmm. Like I, I remember getting a call 
I was on my way to work. I'd worked on a Lex Luger video till about 4.30 in the morning, something like that, because the editor that we had, it was the first non-linear editor. Now, like Premiere Pro and all those programs you have now, they're non-linear, so you can go anywhere you want. Well, that first started when we were doing some of these packages, and before you had to do things right in the perfect order. Well, you didn't have to do that um, once this nonlinear came around, you could rearrange things. So we gravitated to that, and that's what helped really make the NWO look good because we're able to move things around and arrange things in a different order. But uh, anyway, they called me in about, I don't know, it was about uh, 8.30 in the morning or something. They said, Neil, where are you? And they, they don't usually call me and find out where I'm at because they knew I was working on something. Mm-hmm. They go, where are you at? I said, well, you know, I'm about halfway to work. You know, didn't you see I clocked out at 4.30? They said, no, we, we don't have a problem when you're coming in. We just want to know where you're at exactly. I said, why is that? They said, because we need to go to Los Angeles. There's a uh, ticket waiting for you at the Delta counter. <laughs> My like, God. Okay. So, you know, I mean, stuff happened like that all the time, or the next day out, or the day of, or whatever, I was gone. Mm. And, uh, it, it was fun. You never knew what the next day was going to be like. And <laughs> you just had to roll with it, man. <laughs> I, I like that, though. It, it was a challenge. It was exciting. It was fun. And like I said, you just showed up. And I remember... We did the West Texas Rednecks video with Kurt Henning, you know, and yeah. Bobby Duncan Jr. and Eric Berry, Berry Yeah. I like country music. And we did that in Nashville. Well, the walking scenes you see where they're on Broadway Street. I think it's called Broadway Street. Is that Nashville? Is that what Broad- you call it? Uh, people just call it Broadway. Broadway. Yeah. So on Broadway, where we did all the walking, where they had their concert T-shirts on and everything. Yeah. Well, that was going to look a lot better. But some knucklehead who was uh, a local um, a camera assistant, he locked the keys in the car immediately. <laughs> so we didn't have the reflector we were supposed to use. I mean, like, you know, stuff like that would happen. Yeah. And I remember we did that video where we were going out to the Ernest Tubbs print shop or whatever it's Record called. Shop. We, did, yeah. we, did, we went to all those famous places, you know. Mm-hmm. We knocked that video out. Well, we wanted to make a second version of it to where we got a local uh, radio station involved. So we had a whole crowd there where we're going to do a so-called live shot of West Texas Rednecks singing rap with scrap. Well, so our camera equipment would be flying all over the place because we had so many projects going on, right? So we happened to have uh, one or two cameras. I guess we had two cameras with us. No, I think we only had one camera with us. And we wanted to make it look like it was a multi-camera. And we wanted to shoot it like it was a multi-camera. So we had like... Three, they were supposed to come on a flight. Well, they got delayed like four times in a row. Mm. So now we got this whole big crowd there. They know it's supposed to go off a certain amount of time. And now we only got one camera, but we're supposed to have four. Now we got to make it look like there's four cameras when there's only one. So mm. here's the trick. If anybody's in the TV production, let me I'll stop right here. Write this down. Okay, you got the pen? Okay. When you're doing a film or a video with a bunch of people, that are supposed to be the crowd or the background scene people, whatever film or videotape them first, whatever you want to call it, get them involved first. Make sure before the, even before the big talent comes, get every shot of what you want of them. So you can edit that later into the shot that you're going to do later. Get them on camera. Okay. First thing they know now that you as a producer, you're on their side. You want them to succeed. You want to see them on camera. Now, now that you got that laid down, 
you know that those shots are available to you. Well, you know what they know too? They know if I don't act up and act a fool, I might be able to be in that video and on camera. Yeah. Okay. So take that secret right there. Use it the rest of your life. That's, That's the first thing we did. We videotaped the crowd with the, just the music playing. Mm-hmm. They're singing along with, I like um, uh, the, the rap is crap. Okay. Then we do one shot, a wide shot of all the people on stage. Get that down all the way through. We told the crowd, look, I know this sucks, but we're going to have to play this song about five or six times to make it look like we want to look on TV. Mm-hmm. So now we shoot a wide shot. We're going behind these people having a good time, raising their hands, everything. getting that shot where you see everybody in the background. Okay. Then we go shoot like Kurt Hennig singing and individual shots of uh, Barry Windham drumming or Bobby Duncan Jr. playing and uh, Kendall Windham playing their guitars or whatever. So all that you see that looks like hopefully it, that it happened all at one time is all individually shot. Mm-hmm. That's how we put it together. But you have to overcome issues. And yeah, as, like I said, they're the best at it. And it was, it was, uh, so it was a challenge. Yeah, it makes sense, though. I mean, to, I mean, to me, it does. You're kind of using it as B-roll, right? Yeah. In that way. But you're still the finished product is going to be you're not going to. You're not going to, no. you wouldn't know that unless you would have just said that we wouldn't have known the, yeah. not, the average person wouldn't have known. Right. And another example of that, and I don't know what direction you want to take me in, but I'm, I'm fine with anything. Whichever one you want to go in brother. The uh, time when blacktop bully was Barry Darsall, who was, I think crush or something like that. I can't remember what his name was at WWE, but what a talent that guy was blacktop bully, Barry Darsall, man. That guy could make any character. I think he was like some kind of robber or something like that with WWE where he wore this mask. With the mm. anyway, the dude could do anything. He was that. He was just that good. And he was he could talk really well and he could work, of course. But that guy could really talk. And Blacktop Bully, we did a whole thing where we uh, acted like we got him out of jail. And I'll talk about that one in a second. But that was with Colonel Parker and Ming and all them. But this one in particular, um, see, what was it? We have to do with Black Top. Um, well, one of one of the ones we had to shoot where when Black oh uh, Dusty Rhodes he had a problem where of uh, the Nasty Boys he needed to get them to be in a match with, against Black Top Bully and Ming and somebody else. So we had this what's called a scrap bar we called it. It was a where all these guys were tatted up and everything before tattoos were in. And we don't make it look like a really rough bar. It was in Atlanta. And the cool thing was the furniture and everything was all made out of chains and old tires and just creative art. And it was a really cool vibe to it. But anyway, we shot the Nasty Boys. They were in an arm wrestling contest. And we wanted Dusty Rhodes to walk in on this and see see these guys and then try to somehow have his distance a little bit so he wouldn't get attacked by the Nasty Boys because he didn't know if they're going to say yes or no. But yet, talk them into being in the match. Yeah. So the way we shot that, go back to my theory, shoot the crowd first. We shot all the crowd making a bunch of noise. Go nasty, you know, get him, you know, finish it, you know. Yeah. Anything you say during an arm wrestling contest. We shot all them individual shots. I had the cameras. I think we had two. We had them shoot each individual piece of people and make sure you don't just kind of wander off to any direction. Make sure you get a solid shot of mm-hmm. one person saying something like, let's go, man. Yeah, yeah. You go to the next one. You know, make sure you, make sure they are locked in. So we did that. 
So now the crowd is going to behave. They're going to do whatever we need them to because they want to be on camera, which is great. Well, then when the nasty boys come up and they start arm wrestling, and now they want to have some dialogue between each other. Mm-hmm. We want to hear that, right? So now what do the people in the background do? They keep quiet. They go, yeah. So now they're doing that. And the cool thing about it is the way we made that crowd happen, we let them do that for like five minutes. We know the segment was only going to be a minute and a half. But now we're able to take, let's go nasty and position it wherever we want in that timeline. Yeah. See, when we had a downtime, we want to insert it right in the right spot. So that's how you get your audio right. Well, with with the video, when they're back there in the background doing that cheering and stuff, if you wanted to fix something because we couldn't get all in one take, we took that person who said, let's go nasty. And we inserted it right there at full screen. Mm-hmm. We'd never known that that didn't happen at that time. So that kind of thing, junior filmmaking was part of what we did to make it look like it was all one shot. And then you could hear Dusty's playing his day. You could hear, you could hear the nasty boys playing his day. And then all we had to do is on the pot, on the audio, rise up how much crowd we wanted in the background. And that's how, that's how you get away with making it look like it's supposed to happen. And so those are just basic parts of creative filmmaking that can maybe help somebody down the road. Yeah. That's genius tips right there for anybody that's, interested in i mean I'll, I'll say even you know editing this podcast i do it takes so long um, yeah. and i i use i use it like a multi-cam and it's really not it's just a youtube video that i saw mm-hmm. you know where you can kind of duplicate the video file and then crop one crop the other and right. then have the side by side uh, and then I just made the video frame deal on uh, Canva. Yep, you know Canva's a great, that's a great tool. Oh it man, really it's so it, the the fonts and everything. I made the logo on there too. My wife had the lo- the name, picking it out. She came up with that. That's good. I got to give her credit on that. I think I've said that before, but I like that. That's good. No, it, it's fun, man. Because yeah, you can make your own reality. You know, that's what yeah. you do. Wrestling is your own reality, whatever you want to do it. And man, the, to be a creative person, they just let us go wild. One day they want to make it look like a CNN thing. Next day, next day they want to make it look like a Prince video. I mean, it's so many different styles. You know, it was a blast. You know, there was a. I just thought about this. There's a. Uh, I think it was for Spring Stampede. I know it was because it was like an old western town. Mm-hmm. North I think Carolina, Aggie Valley, North Carolina. Was it North Carolina? I thought there was one in Alabama somewhere that y'all did. Uh, uh, that's possible. I remember when we did uh, the weird weird names like uh, Black Bart and Dead Eye Dick and somebody else. And we did that in Maggie Valley for sure because I remember shooting that. And actually, we shot – they accidentally shot off a gun in that one. And it ping, uh, ping, ricocheted off of a bunch of stuff. We shot half those pieces on the way home. But we remember this. There was this nice windmill that's on the way home. So we shot that, and we would get out of the car and shoot that, and then we go somewhere else, like where we wanted to ricochet off of. And so, creative geography is part of it too. Where yeah, just because you see it happen there in that order doesn't mean that's where it was. Right. Yeah. You know, so you always kind of when you drive by stuff like be or whatever, you'd, you'd be thinking about okay, what can I use that background for? What can I use this background for? So, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't know that, that they're very possible, very possible that they did something in Alabama. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. This was like an old Western town. I think it was outside of Jasper. 
and it it was like a it, I mean it wasn't a west a real western town but it was like a these people on this property I was going to do a show out there oh and they started telling me about this uh WCW commercial that was filmed out there okay and, well they're they're probably talking about the pay-per-view commercial then led up to it yeah yeah was it a horseman riding horses or something yeah i think yeah. that was it yeah okay that was it yeah cuz i i think I thought that they had gone back to because we'll go back to the spot that was welcoming to have us there. So I thought that was actually done in Maggie Valley, but you're probably right. It's probably done in Alabama or both. It could have been done in both. Yeah. It was, uh, I guess, uh, some of those guys had a real hard time riding those horses, by the way. I don't think, I don't know if they had <laughs> ever ridden a horse before. Uh, <laughs> He's from Minnesota. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I bet now, those Arn, Arn wasn't from Minnesota, but they acted like he was. That, that whole thing, how they got Arn in there, it's just like, you know, Arn's got a Southern accent. He's one of the greatest guys, man. Had a Southern accent, but yet he's an Anderson, you know. <laughs> <laughs> how they suspend reality in, in a in a big way to get people involved. <laughs> but he was oh, well yeah. Well, you know, I mean, uh, when Monday Nitro started, that that was such a game changer. Uh, were you involved with the set design of Monday Nitro um, at all? Uh, no, I was not. Um, but I was at the first Nitro in the Mall of America in Minnesota. And the, the great thing to have Lex come out like that because he was just on yeah. WWE's TV last night. You know, <laughs> now it comes out. It's that old thing. If you get a chance, uh, by the way, Lex is a, it's a great person now. Yes. I, I didn't have always the utmost uh, admiration for him back then, but I do now. But yeah. he tells the whole story about how he had a contract and how this that all worked out for him to be there. It's on YouTube somewhere. If you get a chance to check it, check it out, it's really good. Yeah, I had him on my on the podcast. Oh, awesome. Uh, he, he's a great dude. Uh, Any of them? Yeah. A lot of humility, you know. He, he knows how he how he was, and he's not afraid to say it. Thank God, literally. Yeah. Yep. Thank God, literally. Man. I mean, it was just like you don't believe in God after hearing his story. Oh yeah. And knowing him personally, the way he was compared to the way he is, wow, it's just mm, it's a good testament. Yeah. Been through a lot. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, I remember those big. Like chrome, like everything had that chrome look to it, and those mm-hmm. big WCW letters on each side of the set. Yeah, more than likely, Rick Morganelli probably designed that. That was so cool. What about the open, the nitro open with the yeah, explosions? Yeah, talk about that for sure. That was shot in Disney. Um, I think the guy that makes a lot of Christian movies, he was involved with that. I think uh, I'll think of his name here in a minute, but. That was at the very corner. I think you could probably see where it was done still to this day in Disney if you go down there. It's probably at the MGM Studios. That's where he shot a lot of stuff. But anyway, I think it's like New York Street, it's called, to where all the buildings are back there and everything. And they assembled a sign up there, but they actually had fireworks go off when they shot it, when they filmed it. And... um. The guy's name's Carl something. But anyway, the guy that 
really helped the NWO look to take it that much further with the film scratches and some of the rolls and you know that yeah. projector stuff. Yeah. So, Kemper Rogers, who was on my podcast, and if you get a chance to to see it or to listen to it, my podcast is called Neil Pruitt's Secrets of WCW Nitro. Guy Evans, who wrote the book Nitro: The Incredible Rise and Inevitable Collapse of Ted Turner's WCW, which is on Amazon, it's not only a book but it's also audio. He and I go over a lot of the things that we did and how we did it and like an extension of what we're doing here now mm-hmm. with Andrew. But you can check that out. It's on iTunes and iHeartRadio. We do an interview with a guy named Kemper Rogers, who was instrumental in a lot of that look. And you saw NWO sold out the very beginning of that. A lot of that stuff was his idea on how it all came down. And uh, he, he was really instrumental in that. But he was involved with that somehow. And they had the fireworks of the NWO where it just blew up and everything. They had some fireworks. And then they added a whole lot later in post-production on graphics that uh, made it look really good. And uh, yeah, the, the, the fire line and all that stuff like that going up to yeah. make the thing go off. And it was a fantastic open. I mean, terrific. And Kemper Rogers was really involved with the NWO when it was in Hollywood. When you saw the Hollywood sign and all that, he was really instrumental in the design of that. But um, uh, I, Carl Horchman, that's the guy's name. He does a lot of Christian films. And uh, he is still in Atlanta, doing well. And uh, he and his brother, his brother was a really nice person, ran tape with us. But those the, the guys that did that whole production, and it was, yeah, that Nitro was awesome. It was iconic. The music's great, too, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. I was going to ask about the music, too. Because uh, I know that Jimmy Hart was involved in, uh, well, earlier, Michael P.S. Hayes. He wrote some of the lyrics, I think, and stuff. But I know Jimmy Hart put together a lot of the arrangements and the music. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think one of the things one. that surprised us as production people the most was that there was not a full part on staff music producer. Like AEW, I, I met the gentleman one day. He's from Nashville. Um, I, I'm sorry, this is with a TNA. I don't know. I don't know where he's working now, but probably somewhere. He's that good. That guy could produce anything. He was terrific. We were always surprised that we didn't have a person like that working amongst us the whole time because the amount of royalties we paid out in music was just pathetic. I mean, yeah. we got busted a few different times for like 35 grand a pop mm-hmm. on not, not reporting it properly. Yeah. You know, because us as people building the show, we didn't have time. And we had a very small staff producing lots and lots of shows and lots and lots of hours. And when they added Nitro, they didn't add any crew to us. I mean, as far as us putting the show out, we just had to take it on and we had to, we had to deal with it. And that was, that was a lot of pressure to get all that content out, you know, every week. It was just, wow. And live. The- yeah. And we had a small staff really compared to WWE. Yeah. And uh, we still made it happen, but I, I, I didn't think we'd ever overcome WWE for a long time. Just, I just don't think we had enough planning and enough diligence and, the way our contracts were for the wrestlers, they didn't have to work as much as they did at WWE. There's lots of reasons. Yeah. I, I mean, I can, I can see why uh, we didn't win in the end, but I love the ride. <laughs> it was a hell of a ride. It was. Eric, Eric had uh, some really, really good ideas. Oh, mm-hmm. and you know, he, the whole going live thing, you know, y'all had, 
of course, done pay-per-views, produced pay-per-views, but a weekly live show, you know, where a million things can go wrong down to a, a, a audio cable, mm-hmm. you know, or something. I mean, was that kind of nerve-wracking at first, especially when it started really, a lot of people started watching? I can speak only from a secondhand position. I wasn't really involved with actually putting that on the air. I only did a lot of the segments that went in there in mm-hmm. the show. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was at, I was at a whole lot of events. Yes. But I wasn't taxed with the day in and day out, getting it on the air. But that was from people like, like Keith Mitchell. Um, yeah. Greatest TV producer there ever was in wrestling and ever will be. He just retired recently from AEW and he gets, all the accolades uh, you ever heard about him. Yeah. He gets that and more. The guy was the best there ever was. And, uh, people like Craig Leathers, who was involved with a lot of directing of the shows. I think Dan Bynum had left maybe by then, or he was still around, but they were instrumental in Kemper Rogers, as I mentioned earlier. But those guys, and, and uh, Jeff Borenstein, the lighting director, those guys and their crews made it happen, and they pulled it together. But I'm sure it was a super stressful situation. Uh, David Crockett, did so much for us getting things lined up for the shoots that I did. I mean, I can't thank him enough for all the stuff that he and his staff did. Steve Barrett and worked with them and Steve Small, who now works with AEW kind of backstage doing things. Uh, he did so much for me. And um, it was just, like I said, a lot of moving parts behind. And I'm sure it was a super stressful situation. They pulled it off every week. I don't remember any time where something went wrong other than, one time at Club La Vila, which is in Panama City, the NWO, something happened. And one thing that I think we could have done a little bit better maybe was to know, have a plan. So when something did go wrong, that you could blame it on the NWO. Kind of just like politics, you know, they do it every day. They they act like somebody else did. It's their problem. They're the one that did it. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. So we could have always had a plan in the back of our mind if something did go wrong. And we could blame it on the NWO no matter what happened. You know, like we knocked completely off the air. It was the NWO's fault. Yeah. But uh, we, they survived that too. I think the power cable, something plugged, something happened. And they went down and they came back on and still worked out. But, you know, you see, you see victories like that, but then you see disasters like NWO sold out. But, uh, they didn't get, they didn't get the production people involved with it. And they didn't tell us what, what their plan was or how it was going to happen. It mm. turned out to be a debacle, even though it could have been really good. It was, I mean, I, I thought the innovative uh, opening that we did was very interesting as far as the, you know, the stupid garbage trucks. I think it was kind of hilarious. And yeah. Some of the stuff, in the very first part of the, the open that we did with Hogan and Nash and Hall that we did in the Eric speech mm-hmm. that we did in Chicago a few weeks beforehand. And I can tell you a funny story about that. Kemper Rogers was uh, primarily involved with directing a lot of that. And he and I wrote the script. Well, we were trying to finalize the script. And I think it was the night before we shot it, actually, we were just making sure that everything was buttoned up and, you know, we had our plan together because we had a big crew involved, lots of likes, lots of confetti. Uh, every NWO person was there. I mean, it, big deal. Eric at the podium delivering his speech, like Citizen Kane. I mean, that's, that was a rip off of that. The yeah. um, having all the different mic flags and everything was just, everything was made up from scratch. Anyway, we're trying to figure out 
what was the last line we saw before we actually went to the road graphics open? Kemper and I were just kind of racking our brains going, what the heck can we say? Anyway, we happened to go into the bar where I think they had just got done with Nitro because we did it on, I think we did it on Tuesday because Nitro was on Monday. And there's this guy, like I said, no matter who is backstage or doing whatever, if they're interested in a product, don't act like they don't have a good idea. Because I think that's another mistake that WCW made was not having a suggestion box from even the people that sent the tapes out. I mean, they watch more wrestling video than anybody. Yeah. Have a suggestion box where you get stuff and they have an idea for an angle or whatever storyline, man. And every now and then even even give them like a hundred dollars. Hey, thanks for coming up with that, man. Here's a hundred bucks, you know, whatever. Because yeah. it's always people are thinking about this stuff and they think of good ideas. And even if you throw away twenty, one's gonna make you money. Anyway, yeah. so that's another soapbox I'm on. That's right. But we started reading our script to a lot of the people that were involved. I mean, I don't care what you did, we would read it to them. And this one guy who was very instrumental in getting place things at the right time whether it be some kind of uh, stick that they need to hit somebody with or whatever. His name was William and he and Moses, Moses was another guy who was involved with getting the sets built and things like that. And he was with Michael Jackson before that. I mean, you know, I'm, t- I'm telling you from top to bottom, we had the best people involved. Well, William was terrific as far as helping out Moses and getting stuff here and there. And he was a bit inebriated. And we read this uh, script to him and he goes, what the hell were you thinking? Mm. <laughs> and that there was the line. We're like, that's it. Yeah. Got it, William. That was it. And that was the line just before we went to the graphic open. For yeah. all of you, for all of you who have offered yourself up as opponents, what the hell were you thinking? Yeah. That was the line. And that's how it came to be. And the and the it was dry. You know, yeah. that last line was dry. The rest of it was like he's in this big like all this echo and stuff, and uh-huh. it's just yeah. like he just get in your face, like like and it's he looked a great mock- the camera at the very end. He broke the fourth wall, they call it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Eric did a great job in delivering that speech. You know what? Yeah, I could say this about Eric. No matter what position he was at, he always could revert back to a talent that needed to have guidance. I don't care what position he was at. I can admire the guy for every time we'd worked with him. He could step back and go, hey, these guys can help me, and they can make this look better than I ever thought it. And he did it every time with us, and I appreciated that. And that's why his stuff, you look at his segments, they all look darn good because he's willing to listen and adapt and make it better than he ever thought it could be. I, I, I admired him for that. Yeah, those those NWO, the early ones, the first, you know, the first ones especially, they were just, they're iconic, man. Well, thanks, man. And, uh, you know, I had a lot of help. <laughs> a whole lot of help. Great crew. Who, whose idea was it to use you as the voice? It was mine in a roundabout way, but I didn't expect my name to come up. So I told Craig and Keith Mitchell and Kevin Sullivan. Kevin Sullivan, he's an unsung hero in a lot of things. Uh, and NWO is one of them. I mean, some of the, like the Dungeon of Doom and all that. I wouldn't involve with that, thank God. But I didn't mm. like any of that. Yeah. 
but um, that's one thing I can criticize. But he had good ideas in a lot of cases. And I had, I was in the parking lot. I think it's in, oh, shoot, I can't remember where it was. Anyway, but I said, look, I've got, I've got a little issue with this NWO thing that I think we need to resolve. I said, if it's going to be an organization that's going to come out of nowhere and try to take over, as far as the voice of it goes, I don't think we should have anybody that we've ever heard before. Because no matter who it was, Lee Marshall, uh, Chris Cruz, whoever, um, Scott Hudson, I don't think we should have anybody of, you know, maybe a like a second or third rate announcer mm-hmm. that has not made his way to the top yet where Tony Schiavone and Jim Ross was, and maybe never could be, who knows? Scott was great, loved him. Um, but we need to have somebody we've never heard before because then it comes out of nowhere. And they said, well, do you have an idea in mind of the voice? I said, yeah, there's this guy. I think his name was Kevin Eubanks. He's since passed away, unfortunately. But he was on the radio in Atlanta, 99X. And uh, they go, well, what does he sound like? I said, he sounds like this. He sounds like 99X. Breathy. It's real, it real breathy. Yeah. Real unusual, not like in your face. Like, hey, mm-hmm. you know, WYOT Toledo, Channel 11. None of that. It was yeah. Just that simple. And they said, why don't you do it? Because mm. I did it for them. I said, okay. Made it easy for me because being a producer, my voice being in me, <laughs> I could use me anytime I wanted, day You're or right. night. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes we'd edit at 2 o'clock in the morning. Lord only knows, just trying to get stuff done. So it was really convenient. And we got lucky enough to for me to do the voice, plus a lot of those things that you saw come out of the sky where they were the NWO where the papers would come out of the sky with different messages on them. Uh-huh. We did, we did those too. And uh, I wish I, I wish I had saved all those, you know, oh, I, yeah. back. I wish I had saved all those different printings that we put out. of. I mean, there's thousands of those sheets of paper and as, as sophisticated as the world is and flashing lights and, Echo audio and whatever else. They were up there one by one. One by one. Going like this. There's many, many people up in the rafters doing that. That's how they got it to fall. Wow. One <laughs> by one. All those papers. And it looked one like it was just one. raining paper. Right. I remember yeah, well, that. Like one of them said, like tradition bites, I think. Yeah. It was one of them. Oh, man. It always had the NWO logo on it. And hopefully. Mm-hmm. Somebody's got that at home, you know. That, that's kind of cool. And the, to me, that was a big thrill to see our stuff like floating through the air with that many, like, man, just printed up because, you know, it just started from our design and we gave them the JPEG and they went off with it and printed it in a million and a half times. Man. And we had copiers that were, <laughs> they were just going like 24-7 to get that stuff done. Or they'd take them to a printing company and Lord only knows how much they paid they could have done. Oh, yeah. Probably stuff a lot. like that, though. It, it was basic, too, you know. I mean, yeah. It was like how they got stuff in World War II or mm-hmm. when stuff happened where they'd warn them about something or tell them a message, you know, just out of the sky. And I don't know whose idea that was originally to get that done, but I thought that was really good. Cool. That was cool. I mm-hmm. remember. It looked great on TV, too. Oh, it did. Yeah. Because they would pan around and it would pan around and just show like it's just like a sea, mm-hmm. <laughs> a raining sea of yeah, paper. Yeah, it's like. Snowfall from every direction. You know? <laughs> that was cool. You know, I, I appreciate uh, you having me on because I get to, you know, 
share with you, Andrew, what other people maybe have remembered, you know, and, and it was just a great time to be a part of it. A lot of times uh, when I first got done with the NWO and everything, I just kind of had a trepidation about it a little bit because I rotted your minds to a certain degree because so much the NWO is a negative connotation and that's not what I am. That's not the person I am. I'm a positive builder up time type person. And to see that you folks uh, turned out really well and, and really good. It's a, it's a pleasure. <laughs> it's a, it's always fun talking about it. You know? Oh yeah. I, I, I appreciate you willing to come on. Uh, oh, no problem. We got, we got more time. Whatever the, whatever uh, the, uh, the sound bites, and the early ones were just Hogan, Hall, and Nash. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I've heard, uh, I can't remember who, I think I think it was Scott Hall and Kevin Nash talk about how Hogan, you know, couldn't really nail the 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 one-liner type cool kind of hip kind of things that they were, that Hall and Nash had it down. Yeah, they You know, they just naturally. Sound bites. Hogan's going off on like ten minute rant, like he's going to slam Andre, you know, or something. And but y'all just kind of let him do that, and then just kind of cut it together, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And it worked. That's, work. that, that's why that was a big advantage of the way we shot it that way, because we could even it out, no matter what, whoever went off on whatever, we could we could even it out. And that's uh, some things I wish I would have kept too. Like when Hogan kicked the world, I had him. I, I bought this beach ball, little had a world map on it, and I kind of told him to do the spray painting thing because you know all, all gangs do that, and mm-hmm. they carry, they carried that to doing it on planes and stuff like that later on. But Adam spraying the set and stuff like that. But I gave him a world, and I said, you know. Show them, show where the uh, WCW originated from, like Atlanta. Show them like that on the map. But the, the world, the NWO has taken over the world, you know. And, <laughs> and we could, it's like, I think I only had like three different uh, globes like that, but Hogan spread perfectly on Atlanta. Covered <laughs> 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 up Atlanta. And then we made an NWO on the other side of it, you know, and just, then he yeah. kicked the beach ball at the, and I'll tell you, the first time he kicked the beach ball, he kicked it right in the camera lens. It was like that, just perfectly Could in the camera lens. Perfect. I mean, stuff like that, you just, yeah. you can't write that stuff. You know, just, no. you can't get that lucky. And it, bang, he just banged off the camera lens. He <laughs> <laughs> threw the bat in the air and it disappeared. And just weird stuff like that that, uh, that happened. Just not not always by accident, but, you know, we, we tried to take advantage of anything like that that came up. Oh, yeah. And the black and white feel to it i mean it was just so it was innovative it was so innovative and it looked like you know you made it look like low budget uh, at the same time it looked so cool that you couldn't forget it it was like (laughs) i don't know you know thanks that was the whole idea um was to make it look like we didn't have any money yeah and it was cheaply done kind of but that afforded us a lot of a lot of things to um make it look cool with the quick cutting and everything. Cause imagine you don't have a lot of money. So you're going to get a kid out of college, maybe that is the director. Well, 
as you age as a director, you, you understand the flow of video and how it's supposed to work. Well, a kid that is just out of college, he just wants to press a bunch of buttons. That's what he was there for, right? Yeah. That, that was the whole idea behind the crazy cuts, like every direction and breaking all kinds of rules and, you know, showing a close up of this and maybe hands of that or just to him, them holding the camera next or whatever. Yeah. It was because of, imagine hiring somebody who didn't know what they're doing, mm-hmm. doing it. And <laughs> I remember one time we did a Lex Luger video when he came with with Liz, God rest her soul. She was a sweet lady. Uh, beautiful, man. Anyway, um, Lex had a motorcycle or something in the foreground and he was talking and he, he was okay at it, but we really had to spice it up a bit. And we were playing stuff behind them on the screen. Well, if somebody didn't know what they're doing running a tape, they would accidentally make it go whoop, like on the air. It would go fast forward. <laughs> yeah. So I remember I was working with a guy who'd done major productions, Mike Gravel. He was a terrific editor. <laughs> and he had a very distinct laugh. And, uh, we just loved to work with him. He's just so cool. And he did so many of our videos. Anyway, I said, <laughs> I said, Mike, do me a favor. I said, you know how that video in the background, and we want to make it look like it's, you know, fast forwarding. I said, put that audio in there. Like, make that noise, you know. <laughs> I said, put it in there. He goes, you sure you want to do that? I said, yeah, we want to do that. So <laughs> he, he would turn around all the time, and, and we'd put mistakes in there on purpose. He goes, you sure you want to do that? Like, yeah, we want to do that. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was so used to doing it right, you know. Yeah. He did exactly perfect. And <clears throat> we wanted to not have it perfect on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> so, he was just shaking his head sometimes, like, okay, I'll put it in there. <laughs> oh, boy, what a joy. Man, so many good people, graphics people, uh, people that unloaded the trucks, man. We yeah. Some real good people. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a great time to be a fan. That's all I can, only perspective I can speak from. Mm-hmm. Um, the NWO, by the way, the black and white deal was a ripoff of, uh, Paul Mitchell hair products. So Paul Mitchell back in the day used to have this black and white look and kind of strange angles and stuff like that. And I was like, that, that'd be good wrestling promo. So that was <laughs> stolen, that was stolen directly off of that. And wow. those, those of you who think you can come up with the original idea and then that's great and all that's good. But I remember the, I, uh, I had a college professor for video editing. Um, we had already gone through most classes. My uh, college roommate, at the end of my stay there, Tim Clune and I, we had already been through many, many video classes, but we decided to take this one. It's called Visual uh, VCT and go over there and take a class. And we were already way advanced in editing and we did an editing class. Anyway, the guy, the very first thing he said when we walked into class was, so as far as creativity goes, what you do is if you can't think of something in the first five minutes, steal it. <laughs> so, uh, steal the idea and make it yours because nobody ever care nor will they nor will they say anything about it because they won't know or you know just people don't care and one of the first things we would do is get the broadcast design awards tapes from last year and we'd look at all the different looks of them we'd steal those ideas just rip it right out there and put it right on the air <laughs> so it was all about creative thievery creativity is you know, a lot of times yeah, I mean, how many times do you think that's been done, though? That's in ever in any kind of aspect of entertainment, you know, that's been done. Over well, I, and over. 
I was uh, kind of a art history. You know, I, I was I love I loved art history and the way people paint and mm-hmm. the masters and all that. So if you find out the backstories of a lot of the famous painters, I mean, they rip people off too, and they sure. have whole crews to do stuff, and they just come in and paint the eyes. I mean, there's a whole factory behind a lot of these paintings. You know, people act like that guy just sit there painstakingly did this whole. No, they, they had a yeah. whole group too, and it, it's the same thing. It's just now we got advanced tools. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a, it's a whole world that makes it happen, not just one or two people. No, it's, it's a lot of people working on it to make it make it happen. Yeah, I was just sitting here thinking about uh, something I saw one time. Uh, I think it was called, it was all the announcers. And I think, I can't remember. I know Gene and Bobby Heenan, Tony Schiavone. What a joy to work with those guys. All of them. Uh, they were all like like a slumber party or something. Do you remember anything about that? This would have been like. It was probably an NWO promo of some sort. I don't know if it was or not. I think it was them. Maybe it was like a supposed to be like a best of something, you know. Uh, but they were like all having pizza and bobbing, and <laughs> it was funny as hell. I can't remember. Was it like all night WCW all night or something like that? That ring a bell? Could have been. I mean, I, I I wasn't involved with some of those promos. They were done for a different department. But some some of them were really, some of them were fairly creative. And yeah. Some of them Really bad. I mean, they made they made yeah. a rest. Sometimes they made a rest look really foolish. But yeah, well, you can't win them all. Can't win them all. No. Um, but I mean, uh, for people to still look back at that time, ain't that something? Yeah, it is. It really is. Bobby Heenan, by the way, was just one of the funnest people to ever work with in their lifetime. The guy was so creative. I mean. Even when we did WCW main event. So WCW main event was a Sunday night show. aired on TBS. And Kemper, he came up with some good-looking graphics package. It was only supposed to air like a couple weeks. And when Gene and Bobby would sit at the table, no kidding, it was a four-by-eight sheet of plywood that had Luan on the top, but it was stained like walnut. <laughs> and it was on... Two sawhorses. I mean, oh my you know, God! Sawhorses were there, and then yeah. <laughs> wow, that's it. It was no expensive looking test at all. <laughs> the cool thing about it was is Bobby always had to have a phone because <clears throat> something was always more important in his life than yeah. the show. So he'd be on the phone talking to his lawyer or something like. <laughs> One of my favorite scripts he used to do was. <laughs> He's, he was talking like he'd be complaining like that, you know. He'd be like going back and forth like he was talking with somebody that was like one of his underlings, you know. He goes, "Okay, mom, I'll call you later." You know? <laughs> <laughs> stuff that he would come up with on his own conversations, only hearing his end, you know. And he was a genius at it. And here's the here's the entertainers these people were, Gene and Bobby. It would just be myself, Bill, the cameraman, and mostly Breeze, the audio guy. Bob Russell. And we'd be in there doing the main event leads. And I'll tell you, sometimes they would mess up and they would say the wrong name or forget the person they're supposed to talk about. And anyway, but he and Gene, they so love to entertain people. 
they would keep on going for like a minute and a half doing their routine, but they, you know, use some creative language in there. That, uh, yeah. Just to make us laugh our heads off. Uh-huh. And just us three. I mean, we didn't, you know, they could have stopped and just started immediately and did it, you know, but they just wanted to make us laugh. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> I mean, those guys were that entertaining, man. They just wanted to make people laugh and they were so good at it. Oh, and so Gina, quick. Gina and Bobby together, man. Those guys are just, they just knew what each other were thinking, you know, and every time they'd be on set, they'd think of something funnier than the last time or just more creative and tag on. It was just such a joy to be around those kind of people that are that good at that. And you can't help but learn something. Yeah. It's, and it seemed like both of those guys were so fast, so quick witted, just come back, just always thinking. And just, just. <laughs> That's what my brother and I say. You know what I like about you? You're always thinking. Hmm. Always. And those guys certainly were. Yeah. Oh, man, what a joy. Those guys are great. Yeah. To see, yeah. you know, just to see Gene interview people. Yeah. You know, a lot of times, yeah, I mean, it was a little bit cornball, but it was very entertaining still. And some of the stuff that Bobby would just come up with on his own, though, man, I mean, he was pretty much a genius. He really was at that stuff. He, he just knew what it took to entertain people and he could make them feel like whatever he wanted to do. And even at the bar afterwards, they'd be doing stuff like that. You know, they just never stopped and they're hilarious. Yeah. Like I, was hilarious. what a joy. I, I remember one of the, I don't know if it was pro or main event. Maybe it was main event. It's Tony and Bobby, mm-hmm. you know, and they're recapping nitro or the pay-per-view or whatever. And it's maybe the last one of the year. Cause it, I remember, Tony says, well, Brain, Happy New Year. And Bobby's like, Happy New Year. Are we done? Can we go? And he just starts hollering and throwing stuff and, like, laughing. His ch- and he gets up so fast his chair flips over. You could tell he didn't <laughs> – that wasn't supposed to happen, you know. But he just – and then he, he goes out this way, and then he makes it a point to, like, run in front of the camera. Even that. Like, that is genius. Yeah, just that small thing right there. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that. He and Scott Hudson together on the set of Worldwide. A lot of people didn't see those syndicated programs that were there, like everywhere, but not on prime time. Man, some of the stuff that they did with their leads was just really funny. They really were. Scott was a really good, just a solid straight man, you know. Yeah. And Bobby would just go off and do his stuff. And doggone, he was so good. <laughs> Scott was so straight and Bobby was so crazy. Man, it just really worked. Yeah, it was. Uh... Man, there'll be an, there'll never be another time like that, you know. It's just yeah, maybe, maybe not. It just it just all happened to come together, you know, at the same time with the social media really not being what it is today, not as prevalent, and you couldn't get information out so quickly, and so still stuff was kind of somewhat secretive, and yeah, um, that's one thing I really didn't like is how they came out and told how they did everything so much because. With Jody Hamilton and myself, the assassin, when I first I worked with him and Nick Patrick and eventually came in, but um, I worked with Freddie Miller and Joe Petticino and wrestling number two and uh, numerous other people. It was like kind of like a brotherhood that we kept yeah. to ourselves. Yeah. How it worked. And Jody never clued me in on anything. I mean, I, I knew it was staged from the very beginning. I mean, sure. I wasn't allowed to watch it because, you know, it was bloody and everything. And, but uh, my mom just, my mom and dad just wouldn't let us watch it. But I come to appreciate what they did. And I, I knew that you couldn't take rabbit punches to the face and stuff like that. But 
Yeah. I kind of just wish that they would have kind of kept it to themselves a little more. Just yeah. Make a little bit of element of mystery. I mean, everybody knows it's staged, but how much is it staged? And that's some of the exciting things we talked about, like with, with the Neil Pruitt secrets of WCW Nitro, my podcast, one of we talked about was the attack in the back and how all the, from the start of where Kevin Nash catches Ray Mysterio and throws him into the side of the oh, trailer yeah. like a lawn dart. And that whole thing, we tell the whole story about how it happened from start to finish and how it all came together and how the people that were actually on the crew were, became actors at that point and how it all worked because of them. And those are stuff that we talk about. It's on iTunes and iHeartRadio on Neil Pruitt's Secrets of WCW Nitro. Guy, Guy Evans does a terrific job co-hosting with me. He wrote that book and the book Nitro, The Incredible Rise, The Inevitable Collapse of Ted Turner's WCW is a terrific book if you really want to know the inside of how it all went down in the end. He explains it all. Eric Bischoff's a huge fan of his. He tracked him down in Chicago. He tracked me down and said, hey, I need to shake the hand of Guy Evans because because uh, he did his homework and he did what wow. he needed to write the book. And, and Eric doesn't do that to anybody. I'm sorry. No. He just he wouldn't do that, period. I know the guy. He's not that tight. But he came and tracked me down and wanted to shake Guy Evans' hand and did. And now they, they know each other and, you know, they've, they've talked a lot. And uh, Eric was just really appreciative of him telling the truth. Yeah. That's pretty cool. But that's the person I have as a podcast partner. And we talk we talk about a lot of things like this. And if you're interested in more in-depth information on how to do stuff behind the scenes and how we pull stuff off, we can – we can uh, supply that with you. We have it broken down into subjects. Like I even get to interview my mentor, um, Jody Hamilton, the assassin. Mm. Before he passed away, I got to interview him and talk to him about all the fun we had. Very cool. And, but it was it's uh, it was it was fun to do. It's been fun to do, and I just appreciate that everybody watching it and appreciating whatever we put into it. It, it really really makes me feel good. And yeah, I appreciate being on, being on stuff like podcast like yours andrew it's it brings back great memories at all times and uh it really makes me realize how lucky i've been it's really awesome yeah everybody needs to check that out and the book is called what's the book called it's called nitro the incredible rise and inevitable collapse of ted turner's wcw it's on amazon and you can actually get an audio form as well mm. what mm. i did was you can do this too when I got the copy of it, I put in this program on my uh, iPhone and actually read it for me. Hmm. So I read the book for me. Um, it's called Speechify or something. Anyway, there's several programs that do it now probably. But having been an editor for so long, I can listen to something three or four times as fast as people actually talk. Mm-hmm. Like, they, can, they can talk that fast. I understand it because I've been editing for so many years, so... I had them read read it to me like three or four times faster speed, and that's how I went through the book. And it's terrific, man. It just Eric said that he put it over on stage at Las Vegas. Mm. And I was guy was up there, and he personally thanked him for writing the book and say that he did his homework as far as that goes. And um, that's how he said he talked to many people that Eric would have begged to get an interview with or a, or a sit down with. And that's how many, he, I think he interviewed 125 people for the book. And they were big leagues of Turner. So they tell the whole story on 
why it all went down. It was, it's really interesting if you're a fan. I'm gonna have to check that out. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Really, yeah, if you haven't, if you haven't read it, I would yeah. definitely you know read it or get the audio audio portion of it. It's, it's you know it's pretty cheap, but uh, and it was a New York Times bestseller, I think, for wrestling. For mm. so, yeah, it did really well. But you know, there's a lot of information out there, but nothing like that. Yeah, and that, that's why I think my podcast is interesting for some people that I do with Guy because we talk about stuff like this and how production happened, not who won, who lost, who hated each other, who yeah. did that. We don't do any of that. We just talk about how we did it. And it get, it just gives another dimension to it. Yeah. You're a fan for sure. Well, everybody needs to definitely go check all of that out. Check out uh, Neil's podcast, uh, Secrets of WCW Nitro, and uh, get that book as well. I'm going to have to check that book out. Uh, yeah, I, I would advise it because it's just packed full of stuff, man. And, you know, it's, it's broken down in chapters, so you can skip around and stuff like that. Like yeah. The formation of the NWO or or whatever, or, you know, what what happened were negotiations for this person or that person, why it all ended. Yeah, it's great. Guy, guy's a terrific person, too. And I think you'll probably see more work from him in the future, collaborating with other people because he's that good. I love working with him. He's he brings a perspective of a fan to the podcast mm-hmm. and ask, ask questions that I wouldn't even dream of. Yeah. Because when I was wrapped up into it, I'm so involved with it. I don't get to see the big picture of it, nor do I get a chance to look at it as a perspective of what a fan saw. We just tried to put something on the air that we thought people would enjoy or yeah. appreciate it, get a reaction from. That's kind of, so it's kind of weird when I think back on a lot of the events, because what somebody else might think was important, I might not even remember though. That's what I like talking to people like you, Andrew, because I'm able to hear other things that people were interested in that I didn't even know they were, you know, remind me of the different positions that I was able to fulfill. I was at WCW because I don't talk about them often. I was just blessed and, you know, God put me at the right place at the right time over and over. It was terrific. Oh man. It's, it's in my. It's like burning my brain. So many little things from, you know, uh, one of the first early nitros, where they're starting to show backstage more and Hall and Nash are invading the production truck, that kind of thing. I remember like a, there was a, it was a nitro and Eric was still the announcer, um, and it was like they quickly go to the announce table because Eric said, wait a minute, something's going on here in the back or something. And there was like a quick shot of the announce table and this woman grabbing papers and like running off the desk and the lights wasn't even, you know, the lights on the announce table wasn't there. And it's like, it was, you know, Oh, we didn't plan for this. You know, it felt, it gave it a real feel, just little details like that. Mm -hmm. Oh, there was, those were meticulous in stage. I mean, oh yeah, some of them were practiced, you know. Yeah, it was, it was genius. I mean, it was just well played out. That whole thing was, and something that had never been done before, mm-hmm. you know. And as now, it's, it's totally different now. But it was, it was a cool, you know. How could you not be a fan of that? Especially, I'm. How old was I? Twelve, thirteen, you know. I mean, we had the NWO shirts like that, wearing them to school, just, you know, 
<laughs> yeah, <I love> it. <laughs> it was, man, it was, you know, uh, well, I mean, when WCW ended, were, were you with them until the end? I was. Wow. I was actually standing next to Ric Flair when, at the very end of the Nitro, mm. it said, it said copyright World Wrestling Federation. Man. And we'd look at each other like, you believe this? But Flair was ready to move on anyway. I mean, yeah. He was, he was done with it. He had done all he could do times 10 to try to help the company out too. And his, his, he had greener pastures. And I'm so happy for people like Booker T, especially people like that, that, you know, really did go on to make something great. Oh, yeah. Ray Mysterio. I mean, Dean Malenko, so many people that got a chance and they got what they deserved. And because they were so great at Tay Long, I mean, you know, he went on to do some awesome stuff. I mean, she was, I just think about, about all the people that did eventually go up there and really do well. And I know they would. Um, Chris Jericho, you know, they go on to do stuff that he did and then on the AEW and, and Dustin Rhodes. And I remember there's a, there's a video that we've done that I don't say this very often, but there's a, series of interviews that I did backstage with a camera guy who was independent. Um, he didn't work for WCW, nor did he get paid by them. On his own dime, came down. We interviewed a lot of people backstage. It's like, what are you going to do now? Mm. That, that, that video hasn't aired yet. Um, you got to figure out how to get that on the air somehow. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because I know people would be interested in that. You see these guys when they're they're trying to figure it out, man. It's yeah. real life. It's no joke. And yeah. it, it's no holds barred. We go backstage. I go backstage where we all can go. And, you know, we we talk to them. They're like sitting around the round table. Like, like uh, Eddie Guerrero was there and people like that. Just what are you going to do now? Mm. They're, they're just talking, you know, and hopefully someday we'll be able to produce that. But there'd have to be some money involved to get it on the air. And this was after the last Nitro? Before. Before. Mm-hmm. Just before the last Nitro. That day of, it was a serious deal mm. for everybody. And it was one of the saddest days of my life because I knew of all the effort that the people backstage put forth to make it all go down. Yeah. And do what they could and do their best from the roadies to the set design people that put the set up to tear it down to people that, you know, help get the arena prepped. I mean, people in the office, uh, legal people, whatever. There's just a whole big machine that makes it all go down and work and they all busted their butt. Now they don't know what they're going to do. And uh, it, it threw me back for quite a few years, actually, after having lost that job because I made decent money then. And people would look at me and go like, well, why would you want to work here for that little money? I had a hard time finding a job after it was very difficult because I was so lucky to be in so many good positions. And then, I mean, nobody wanted to hire me because of what I got paid or what they thought I was going to do if I did work there. So it was a, it was a tough day. <laughs> well, so now um, Turner didn't, didn't keep you. 
as a Turner employee after that? Or had you already had you already kind of when you renegotiated just it was it just with WCW the that part of Turner or Well unfortunately they, they pretty much lied to us and said that they were going to absorb us back in the system and they could have mm-hmm. in a lot of cases. But they in general AOL Time Warner they didn't like the stigma of having wrestling anyway. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if some people were intimidated by our ability to produce good product and a lot of product to put on the air. I think jealousy was maybe a factor on some of the hiring positions. Like I thought I was going to be able to be an editor and uh, remember a guy who was in position of hiring people. I was at one point directing a thing called the music room for CNN and there was a position for an editor came up and I knew I could have fulfilled it because I'd been working in those suites for years as a producer. And yeah. I, I edited for a long time and I knew the system and I knew their protocol and I, I knew the inside workings of Turner. Yeah. And he goes, let me ask you one question. Neil. I said, what is that? He goes, if you get the job as an editor and somebody comes to you and wants you to direct a show like on CNN or TBS or whatever, would you do it? I said, yeah, of course I would. He goes, well, then I can't hire you. <laughs> I said, me. what do you mean you can't hire me? I said, you can't. I said, you can plug me in right now, dude. You can plug me into the system. I know the system. You could plug me in right now, and I could work however long, and you'd be good for it. And I said, on my way out, I would teach people whatever I know to get the job done. You know that. And he wouldn't hire me. What a jerk, you know. People like that, you're like, whatever. I mean, you know, you're supposed to kind of absorb us in the system, but you didn't. And then when mm. you got an opportunity for somebody to take it, they wouldn't give it to you there either. So I don't know. I think they were, a lot of them too were jealous because we made a lot of money yeah. uh, in our division because we made a lot of money for the company. And some of those other positions, they just didn't pay as much as we got paid. Because one, I remember one time I really pissed somebody off. They go, Neil, why did you do that stupid wrestling anyway? I said, we, I said, first of all, we'd have to like, pay a paychecks, and you'd see right away why I do what I do. That's one. <laughs> I said, plus the other one, I said, I said, you know what the difference is between wrestling and CNN is? They said, no. I said, the difference is at least we admit it's fake. They <laughs> did not like that one. Oh, man. That was my answer. Oh, man. So true. So true. That is the, yes, that is the, by far the best answer you could have get. I mean, what could they say to that? Yeah, it's really from a question now. You can see it. It's so obvious now. Yeah. It was obvious back then, but it really isn't. Oh, yeah. It's definitely probably is a good thing that you didn't. Yeah, it's probably, they, they just, it's, yeah, it's like you said, it was just like a deliberate, just, you know anything they could say to not hire you or not keep yeah. you mm-hmm. was, amazing i was kind of stunned really because oh okay just the whole example of the cnn show the music room ralph prada who was a great crane operator for us and for turner and now he's with uh, the weather channel and does stuff like 
a master's in Augusta. I mean, just, you know, the guy's top notch, man. One of the best crane operators I've ever worked with by far. He's so good. He was the one that came up with the idea for that show. He pitched it um, called, it was called Mundo Musical. And that was in Portuguese and Latino video billboard. It was a Spanish version of the show they came up with. And they showed it to CNN. Showing it, CNN directly ripped it off. Didn't give him any credit for it. Mm. But turned it into that show called The Music Room. And then we had a lady that was the, the host of it. And she wasn't real good. And we finally whipped her into shape. And once we got her into shape and had her doing it really well, and I guess she's going on to do really good things. I'm so proud of it because we helped her and she did listen eventually. But after we got it rolling to where it was super smooth, because I'd worked with so many of these crew members before with wrestling, they knew to trust what I said. And it just, boy, it just really flowed after a while, right? They go, well, Neil, uh, you know, we're not going to need you to direct the show anymore. We got somebody from CNN and he's like, Trying to look for something to do, so we're going to give him that show. You know, it's mm. like stuff like that happen. You're like, oh, you people, man. You just, you just <laughs> never want to really associate yourself with them again when bull crap like that. No, <laughs> but it's part of life, you know. And it happens all on every every facet of production or yeah, any, any job you go to, you're gonna you're gonna find those kind of people, and stuff happens to you that's negative like that. But I'm just really blessed to be in a great position now, so it's all good. Well, what you doing now? I'm working with a rather large defense contractor. Wow. Learn how to build things. and Awesome. We promote their initiatives and their products. And it's really, really, I, I work with great people. Uh, they're really top-notch professionals again. And they've, a lot of them have been there for 15 years. And I'm the young guy. Having <laughs> been there only like four years. So I'm, I'm the low man in the total pole. Well. At the age I'm at, uh, that's a that's kind of a nice thing to know because I'm working with people that are that good. So, so that's that's a terrific career I've had, man. God has blessed me numerous times over and over, and you get to see things like you said before. You can't pay it. You can't pay to get a ticket to see some of the stuff I saw. Yeah. So I'm so I'm so blessed. You still keep in touch with any of the old WCW crew or talent? Yeah. Uh, yeah, sometimes I, I see uh, Steiner Brothers every now and then. Uh, see DDP every now and then. Um, Mark Merrill, who is funny to be bad. Talked to Lex recently. Uh, I was in I was in Dallas. Speak with Sonny Ono. Um, Stevie Ray from Harlem Heat, great guy, really smart dude. Got a great podcast. Check him out. He talks about subjects from A to Z. That dude is so well educated and stuff, man. He's just. He's a big, menacing-looking person, but he's just a smart guy. And I got to hang out with Sonny a lot in Dallas. And we had a blast. We always did. Um, and it's so it's so cool to and I and I uh, got to eat dinner with uh, Eric Bischoff and his son while we were down there, and got to see uh, Che and Spice from the Nitro Girls. They came by and mm. seeing Teddy Long and Ron Simmons and Arn Anderson and. Uh, even talking to Brooke Hogan for a second. I mean, it's just the, it, and you know who I had a great conversation with was uh, the guy named Max Payne who played the national anthem at the uh, Augusta. Yeah, it was uh, the Clash of Champions. But I, I told him that I remembered seeing that, and I told him I was a producer and everything. At first, he's like, 
then he then he kind of it kind of clicked in his brain and just seeing those people and you know seeing like Medusa over the years and just people like that and Barry Dorsal again and man just Barry Windham and just all the iron iron just all those people you get to see over and over and you know you just know you have so many good times with them you just pick it right back up where you left off you know yeah and it's just really it's really cool because you have friends for life for life for life <laughs> well man. We could go on and talk about stories and whatnot for four hours, probably. But uh, I'll let you get to uh, enjoying your your friends' company there. All those guitars hanging up on the back. That's what we was talking about before we went on. Is a yeah, friend of yours I'm in North Carolina? Pictures. Yeah, it's called Moving Pictures in Murphy, North Carolina. Keith Ratliff does an awesome job making videos. If you ever need one, he's terrific at it. He hired me a lot of times and he used to work with Poison Girls Clubs of America. We've been in many places, uh, up to Minneapolis and down to Florida a couple of times. And we've been all over the place together. So yeah, it's good to, have, good to have friends for life for sure. Now I have another one. Andrew. Mm. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Friend for life. All right, man. Well, really appreciate you coming on with us today. And, uh, man, what a, what a conversation about, you know, a lot of really, a lot of the things we talked about here is so easily done nowadays compared to when y'all were doing them. You know, you can get on YouTube. Well, even what we're doing here, you'd have had to have a satellite feed and a truck and everything set up for a remote thing like this. Mm-hmm. Now we're doing it on our phone. That's insane. <laughs> really is. <laughs> But uh, y'all, please go check out uh, Neil Pruitt's Secrets of WCW Nitro podcast. And it's everywhere where you can get podcasts. And check out he and Guy Evans' book. I can't remember the name of it. Say it again. It's called Nitro, The Incredible Rise, Inevitable Collapse of Ted Turner's WCW. There you go. From the man himself, and we'll see you next time on Picking It Out. Appreciate y'all tuning in.